0: or sitting near him, as Cicero gleefully pointed out. Their timorous reaction to the climate of fear only reinforced it. The consul launched into his speech, accusing Catiline of actually plotting the destruction of every single one of us, and of all Rome, and of everything upon the face of the earth. Catiline was determined to plunge the entire world into fire and slaughter. His conspiracy constituted the most ferocious and appalling and deadly menace to our country. He and his confederates were ready to besiege the Senate House with their swords and mobilize their firebombs and brands to plunge the city into flames. In subsequent invectives, Cicero was to repeat this charge again and again "'Catiline intended to burn down the entire city and kill you all. "'His goal was nothing less than the extermination of the Roman people. "'Cicero addressed Catiline directly as a man of evil spirit "'who had launched repeated attempts upon Cicero's own life. "'Although I was well aware that my death would be a disaster to our state, "'I employed only my unaided endeavors to frustrate your plots.' There are all your attempts, for example, to kill myself. Many of your dagger thrusts were so lethal that it seemed they could not fail to hit their mark. All the same, by some sort of sideways movement or dodge, I managed to elude them. Ten years later, Cicero would again portray himself as the moving target of a popularis. Many is the time that I have narrowly managed to escape from Publius Claudius' weapons and gory hands. One can only marvel at how the fleshy orator nimbly evaded his presumably determined assailants. During his speech in the Senate, Cicero repeatedly indulged in threats against Catiline's life, noting that he was timing Catiline's execution to coincide with the roundup of other like-minded blaggards. To convince the Senate that summary executions were not without precedent, He repeatedly and approvingly mentioned the murder of Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus and other leaders of high social rank on mere suspicion of treason. But many senators found the charges hard to believe, which probably explains why they made no attempt to detain Catiline. Sensing that he was not carrying his audience, Cicero criticized those colleagues who refused to see the disasters that menaced them and again the next day before the assembly he complained that there were quite a number of people who did not believe what I was telling them. Nevertheless, the orator's repeated accusations managed to create a witch-hunt atmosphere that Catiline's calm denials could not sufficiently dispel. The dispirited Catiline quitted Rome the night after Cicero's first invective. If we are to believe him... He departed not to organize a revolutionary opposition in Italy, but reluctantly when the consul's denunciations and threats in the Senate made his position untenable, causing him to fear for his life. Catiline dispatched letters to men of consular rank and other members of the aristocracy, describing himself as beset by false accusations, and unable to cope with the intrigues of his enemies he informed them that he would go into exile at Massilia, Marseille. Within days after his departure, Catiline must have had second thoughts about exile. Instead of going to Massilia, he joined the restive denizens led by Manlius in Etruria. That he had intended to do so all along has been the accepted opinion among most historians, beginning with Cicero. Indeed, It is possible that he lied in order to throw any pursuers off his track. It is just as likely that he changed his mind as he issued forth. He realized he could never expect to return to Rome and live unmolested, and he feared being hunted down by the consul's armed guards while abroad. In any case, a fearful barren life in exile did not fit his temperament, so he embarked upon one last desperate gambit, joining the dispossessed in northern Italy, who were now taking up arms to defend themselves from foreclosures and usurious debt collectors. This is suggested in the letter produced by the arch-conservative Quintus Catullus, which he said came from Catiline. It read in part, I was provoked by wrongs and insults and found myself unable to maintain a position of dignity. So I openly undertook the championship of the oppressed, as I had often done before. It was because I saw unworthy men promoted to honorable positions, and felt myself treated as an outcast on account of unjust suspicions. That is why I have adopted a course of action, amply justified in my present circumstances, which offers a hope of saving what is left of my honor. I intended to write at greater length but news has come that they are preparing to use force against me. When word of Catiline's arrival in Etruria reached Rome, the Senate declared him and Manlius public enemies. On the 9th of November, before the assembly, Cicero delivered a set piece in the art of demonization. Imagine every type of criminality and wickedness that you can think of. Catiline has been behind them all. In the whole of Italy there is not a single poisoner, gladiator, robber, assassin, parasite, will-forger, cheat, glutton, adulterer, prostitute, corrupter of youth, or youth who has been corrupted, indeed, any nasty individual of any kind, whatever, who would not be obliged to admit he has been Catiline's intimate. Whenever, all through these years, there has been a murder— The murderer has been he. Catiline even encouraged his young male lovers to murder their parents and personally lent a hand in such misdeeds, Cicero assured the assembly. The orator did not explain why the depraved patrician had never been prosecuted for any of these horrific exploits. Cicero's strategy was enjoying some success. Demonize and isolate catiline, push him to the wall, and goad him into an act of unlawful resistance, all the while creating a climate of alarm within the city. The orator cum savior would then use the perilous emergency as an opportunity to restore, in the manner of Sulla, the unchallenged authority of the inner circle of aristocratic senators, thereby earning their eternal gratitude and winning supreme glory for himself still the lurid scenario he conjured was wanting in one essential component evidence not one person had been harmed not a house torched not an arms cache uncovered not a hilltop or vantage point seized by the insurrectionists not a trace of anything nefarious afoot not a perpetrator rooted out and apprehended. The squadrons of incendiaries and armed cadres never materialized. Subversion and mass murder were nowhere to be found except in the hyperbolic screeds emanating from the overheated consul. With Catiline now ensconced in Etruria, another month passed and still nothing materialized. Cicero easily explained why, The insurrection had been stymied by his unmatchable vigilance i myself am on guard the interests of our country are in my watchful care and my courage wisdom and foresight have preserved the state from the gravest of perils a dramatic turn came on the third of december when an excited cicero summoned the senate into another emergency session He announced that he had planted informers in a secret clique of aristocrats who were confederates of Catiline. Acting on tips from his undercover agents, he had arrested a delegation of allobrogues from Gaul who were in Rome seeking redress from the extortions of Roman officials and usurers. A certain Umbrenus, a moneylender active in Gaul and probably an agent of Cicero, approached the unsuspecting Gauls and informed them of Catiline's conspiracy to overthrow the Roman Republic. He even named the conspirators. Fearing that they were being set up by a provocateur, the Allobrogues informed a senator who regularly acted as their patron in Rome. He in turn informed Cicero, probably not realizing that he was thereby drawing the Gauls into the consul's net. The next morning, Cicero had the Allobrogian envoys arrested as they were wending their way out of the city, along with someone named Titus Voturcus, a provincial Italian who supposedly had entered in league with Catiline's conspirators. The envoys were now implicated. Either they cooperated with the promise of ample monetary reward or risked dire retribution. The Gauls chose to cooperate fully with Cicero. Following his instructions, they managed to get introduced to the aristocratic conspirators and asked from them a written undertaking under their personal seals that the Allobroges could carry to their countrymen. Cicero then summoned the aristocrats, who, acting not at all like guilty conspirators, obligingly answered his call only to find themselves under arrest. It was to be suspected con writes that Umbrenus himself was in cicero's hire and volturcius the conspirator caught along with the gauls was almost certainly a paid informant he had only recently joined the conspiracy and upon capture with inordinate alacrity offered to turn state's evidence volturcius corroborated the whole litany of horrors cicero had been highlighting he claimed that at a signal for an uprising Youths of noble families were to murder their fathers. But Cicero did not press Voltercius to name any of the prospective patricides. The letters of the apprehended aristocrats revealed no precise evidence of criminal intent and probably were primarily statements of support for the Alabroges redress of grievances. If they had contained mention of arson, massacre, or seizing state power— We certainly would have heard about it from Cicero. Still, the orator held forth about the impending apocalypse. He noted that when Catiline had broken out of the city a few days ago, actually Catiline had departed unimpeded nearly a month before, he left behind him at Rome the associates of his odious designs, the ferocious leaders whose madness and malignancy knew no limits. One of these maddened, malignant conspirators was none other than Publius Lentulus Sura, an eminent praetor and former consul, a friend of Catiline's, and Mark Antony's stepfather. Lentulus had written a supportive letter to Catiline, which Voltercius supposedly was asked to deliver. It urged Catiline to stand firm and enlist the aid of all, even of the lowest classes, that being the only portion of lentulus's letter that cicero quotes and therefore the only portion known to us we might expect it is the most damaging yet it hardly bespeaks a sinister conspiracy to destroy rome stand firm in the face of unrelenting calumny is not exactly a call to overthrow the state and butcher all its inhabitants rather Lentulus seems to be calmly advising his friend to rally enough support to withstand Cicero's onslaught. And if Catiline and Lentulus had long been conspiring with armed slaves and plebs, then Lentulus's suggestion that he enlist even the lowest classes seems oddly redundant and out of date with what supposedly already had been brewing among the conspirators. Appearing in the forum later that day, Cicero announced that it was now conclusively proven that Catiline planned to invade Rome and massacre the entire citizenry. The five confederates had been plotting an insurrection from within, and Lentulus intended to make himself king of Rome. Another conspirator, Cetigus, a man of some wealth, possessed a private collection of fancy high-priced daggers and swords that Cicero eagerly confiscated. And treated as the arsenal intended for Catiline's rogue army. The five were guilty, Cicero assured the assembled crowd. More conclusive than any evidence was their pallor, the look in their eyes, the set of their features, their silence, as they stood there stupefied, gazing fixedly upon the ground, or occasionally glancing furtively at one another. Their guilt was quite as manifest from their own appearance as from anyone else's testimony. A different conclusion is reached by the few dissenting historians who note that the evidence against the five had been proffered by informants of questionable credibility, and that the accused had not been allowed to cross examine their accusers in any systematic fashion. To any senator retaining a modicum of common sense, It was clear that the hullabaloo was out of all proportion to the events. A coterie of sympathizers had tried to mobilize support for their friend Catiline, but were they planning arson, murder, and revolution? If so, by what means? It was not with an invisible army of plebs and slaves, nor was it with Manlius and his veterans, who petitioned the Roman proconsul only for land reform and relief from taxes and debts nor with the Allobroges, who were petitioning for grievances of their own and who gave no evidence of planning a Gallic invasion of Rome. The following day, the 4th of December, as Sallust tells it, a certain Lucius Tarquinius was brought before the full Senate House. He claimed to have been on his way to join Catiline when he was arrested. Why the authorities thought he was suspect, Sallust does not say. Told to speak by Cicero, Tarquinius readily related a story tailor-made to support Cicero's charges, and strikingly similar to the one spun by Volturcius. But Tarquinius also claimed that he had been sent by Marcus Crassus to instruct Catalan to prepare his attack with all due haste. The mention of Crassus, an aristocrat possessed of immense wealth and prestige, had an unsettling effect on the Senate. It was one thing that Crassus may have supported Catiline for consul and bailed him out in an earlier extortion case, but something else to accuse him of plotting to overthrow the Roman government. Could the commander, who had ruthlessly crushed Spartacus' slave rebellion in 71, now be leading a slave rebellion of his own? Could the richest landlord in Rome now want to torch his own properties? Some senators found Tarquinius' statement beyond belief. Others thought it best not to provoke a powerful man like Crassus, regardless of how true or untrue the allegation against him. The full house swiftly declared the charges to be false and decreed that Tarquinius be kept in custody until he revealed the name of the person who had put him up to such testimony. Some suspected that Tarquinius had been suborned by Cicero in an attempt to undermine Crassus, who had developed the habit of working with reform-minded leaders, including the popular Pompey, who at that moment was in Asia on a military campaign. Sallust writes, At a later date, I actually heard Crassus declare with his own lips that this infamous accusation against him had been made by Cicero. Two leading optimates, Catullus and Piso, nursing political and personal grievances against Julius Caesar, urged Cicero to enlist informants to bear false witness against him. But Cicero, perhaps mindful of how the charge against Crassus had redounded with ill effect, refused to risk it. Catullus and Piso then took matters into their own hands, circulating falsehoods that they pretended to have heard from Volturcius or the Allobroges provoking enough feeling against Caesar to cause armed knights, strong partisans of Cicero's, to threaten him with their swords as he exited the Senate House. On the 5th of December, 63, the Senate held a momentous session. Various senators now came forward with incriminating testimony against the five Catiline conspirators. Consul-elect Silanus, a Cicero collaborator, declared that Categus had marked him and seven other high-ranking senators for death. Silanus offered no evidence to support this startling indictment, nor did he explain why he had waited until now to report it. Categus, Lentulus, and the other conspirators should suffer the extremist fate, he demanded, a cry taken up by other senators. With the conspirators' fate seemingly sealed julius caesar took the floor still four years away from his first consulship caesar already was a leading figure in roman politics identified with the popular faction calmly he urged the senators upon a different course reminding them of their constitutional duty he could not countenance putting the accused to death without a trial instead he recommended keeping them in close custody until further investigation and adjudication. Surely now was not the time to do something rash and irreversible, and certainly unconstitutional, something that might only generate a still graver crisis. Here Caesar was alluding to the possibility that the executions might rouse disturbances among the people, many of whom had taken to Catiline's late-blooming populism. Caesar's measured remarks, writes Plutarch, wrought such change in the opinions of the Senate, which was in fear of the people, that even Silanus hastily announced that he too had not meant death when he called for the extremest fate, but incarceration, which to a freedom-loving Roman was far worse than death. Catullus took the floor and sputtered in rage against the course urged by Caesar. He was followed by another optimate leader, the younger Cato, who angrily taxed Silanus for his recantation, then assailed Caesar for using the cover of humane words while trying to subvert the state, seeking to frighten the Senate in a case in which he himself had much to fear. Here Cato was accusing Caesar of being secretly in league with Catiline. Why else would he essay to rescue enemies who had brought the country to the brink of ruin and whose deaths would free the state from great slaughter and perils. While Cato had the floor, it happened that a messenger delivered a note to Caesar. Seeing an opportunity to fix suspicion, Cato cried out that even now, as he spoke, Caesar was communicating with enemies of the commonwealth. Cato bade him read the missive aloud. Instead, Caesar rose and handed the sheaf to Cato who unhappily discovered it to be a billy doux from his very own half-sister Servilia, the mother of Brutus, who long had been engaged in a notorious liaison with Caesar. Plutarch describes her as being madly in love with him. In a distemper, Cato threw the note back at Caesar, snapping, keep it, you drunkard, an oddly inapposite epithet, since Caesar was known to be a temperate imbiber and the note pertained to a different sort of intoxication experienced by Servilia. Though his ploy against Caesar backfired, Cato turned the tide of opinion. The jittery senators voted to condemn the accused to death. That same evening, under Cicero's direct supervision, Lentulus, Cethagus, Statilius, Gabinius, and Caiparius were taken to a prison one by one lowered into a dank, foul chamber and strangled to death. Other conspirators of lesser renown were rounded up in Rome and elsewhere in Italy. Under the law, now that his consulship had expired, Cicero held court in his home. Some of the accused were put to death on the testimony of an informer, others were acquitted. Some supposed to be guilty were allowed to escape. In a polemic sometimes attributed to Sallust, an anonymous critic notes that several among the accused who offered Cicero sumptuous gifts, including a house, a Tusculan Villa, and a Pompeian Villa, escaped retribution. But those who could not afford such favors were charged with plotting against the Senate, and Cicero was certain of their guilt. Some weeks later, Catiline and his poorly armed band in Etruria, beleaguered by Roman legions closing in from north and south of them, fought valiantly in what was essentially a defensive action. Catiline was killed, and the Etrurian force was crushed. No prisoners were taken. For the next twenty years Cicero tirelessly credited himself with having preserved the state and having delivered the Senate House from massacre, describing his crusade against Catiline as the grandest deed in the history of the human race. He had to admit that the only citizen the Republic could not do without was myself. In a letter to Lucius Luceus, who was writing a history of Rome lost to us, Cicero asked him to use his genius to eulogize the role that he, Cicero, had played in the city's history with even more warmth than perhaps you feel, and in that respect to disregard the canons of history by writing with a partiality that enhances my merits even to exaggeration in your eyes, even a little more than may be allowed by truth, this would help bring the vindication of my claims to everlasting renown. For if a man has once transgressed the bounds of modesty, the best he can do is to be shameless out and out. Cicero's tireless Rodomontade became the accepted opinion among intellectuals through the ages. Valerius Paterculus, Plutarch, Juvenal, Lucan, Dio Cassius, Florus, and other ancient writers praise him almost as much as he praised himself for having thwarted a pestiferous conspiracy against Rome and all its upstanding citizens. Likewise, most modern-day historians accept Cicero's account of how he rescued the city from Catiline's clutches. They write of the firm evidence he produced, the diligence and care that spared Rome from fire and sword, his brilliant statecraft, quick, decisive, and courageous action, and prompt countermeasures. For those of us less enamored with the great orator, troubling questions remain, beginning with the more implausible charges. If the alleged conspirators sought to become the masters of Rome, why were they intent upon wiping out the city and every single individual, menacing our country with annihilation, as Cicero claimed? Why would they want to preside over a heap of corpses and burnt rubble? Catiline's secret band of confederates, according to Cicero, was composed of debtors, gamblers, layabouts, parasites, assassins, debauchers, effeminate degenerates, and louche characters of every sort. How could the arch-villain hope to overthrow the Roman Empire with such a raggle-taggle band of wastrels and misfits? Given Catiline's bloodthirsty designs, why were no murders committed? Assassination was hardly an unknown accomplishment in Roman politics, yet Catiline and his bumbling gang seemed never to get the hang of it. The two consuls-elect were supposedly targeted in the January 65 murder plot, but nothing happened. As for the plot to kill hundreds of senators the following month, again, nothing happened. There was the report, widely publicized by Cicero, of two Catiline conspirators who were appointed to kill him. But when denied entry into his house, they departed without a murmur and never bothered him again. Cicero claimed, I had almost been murdered in my own home. But why did he not have them arrested for conspiracy to commit murder? Why did he not produce them and his anonymous informant for public questioning? Again, nothing developed. Commentators cannot even agree on the identity of these two lackadaisical perpetrators. Sallust is sure it was Cornelius and Vargunteus. Plutarch fingers Martius and Cethygus. Appian accuses Lentulus and Cethygus. Dio gives no names. Suetonius and Valleus do not even mention the incident. And Cicero himself is oddly vague, saying only that it was two roman equestrians which rules out most of the above cicero refers to attempts against several other individuals and an attempt to kill catiline's competitors on the consular comitia of 63 again nothing happened and what evidence was there that catiline repeatedly assaulted cicero with a dagger but apparently in so ungainly a fashion as to be thwarted by the consul's sidesteps Why didn't Cicero have Catiline arrested for these attempts upon his life? Catiline and his accomplices were ignominious failures also when it came to arson attacks. If you can believe Sallust, Catiline enlisted a number of debauched society ladies to agitate among the city slaves and organize incendiary assaults. Again, nothing came of it. It was said that Catiline planned to seize key points throughout the city with armed men. Again, no results. The incendiaries were supposedly forestalled by Cicero's guards. This, too, is difficult to believe. Rome was a tinderbox. Accidental fires were frequent and fierce. If bands of arsonists really intended to start a major conflagration, no number of guards could have prevented it. What evidence did Cicero have to support his startling charge that Catiline's friend Lentulus sought a kingship over Rome? Lentulus was doubtless mindful of how kings were abominated by the Roman people, and he was sensibly aware that he himself, albeit a fine orator, laid claim to no strong following in the forum, the senate, or the military. How then could he have hoped to achieve such a grandiose goal? Without an army, how would he have hoped to resist a jealous Pompey, who, hastening back to Rome with his legions, would have dispensed with any self-proclaimed king, or for that matter, any self-installed consul, such as Catiline? Why would the five accused divulge their dangerously self-incriminating secrets in letters fixed with their personal seals to foreign envoys from Gaul, with whom they had no previous connection? Cicero himself was aware that this incredible scenario craved explanation. His answer, delivered before the assembly on the afternoon of the 3rd of December, was that divine forces caused them to blunder. Lentulus and the other traitors in our midst would never have been such madmen as to entrust these vital intrigues and communications to people who were both strangers and barbarians unless the gods themselves had denuded their outrageous scheme of every shred of discretion. Before the Senate, Cicero claimed, Gentlemen, I feel conscious that the will and guidance of the immortal gods have been directly behind every single thing I have arranged. This from a man who privately debunked the auspices and other religious beliefs. Given the supposedly massive dimensions of the plot, why was there no evidence other than the dubious testimony of several informants who simply reiterated the charges leveled in Cicero's invectives? Rewards were offered for information about the plot. For a slave, the prize was freedom and 100,000 sesterces, about 10 years' earnings for the average laborer. For a freeman, double that sum and a pardon for any share he had in the conspiracy. Sallust notes that not a man among all the conspirators was induced by the promise of reward to betray their plans. As usual, Sallust does not question further. But we might ask, why did not one feckless turncoat issue forth with information in order to pocket the sumptuous reward and save his own skin? Most probably the conspiracy was not betrayed because it did not exist, at least not to the phantasmal extent conjured by Cicero. On the 29th of December, the last day of his consulship, Cicero attempted to make a farewell speech lauding his year in office, but the assembled crowd would not allow him to utter a word besides his oath. Instead, they hooted him down, for executing Roman citizens without a fair trial and without the consent of the people. In vehement protestation, the orator shouted back that the safety of the state and city is due to my efforts alone, a boast that only succeeded in inciting still more anger from the crowd. Cicero had hoped that his renown as Rome's deliverer would prevail throughout the ages, and so it has, among many classicists, but among the sensible commoners of Rome, his self-anointed
1: glory endured for hardly a day. Chapter 6 The Face of Caesar Caesar shall forth. The things that threatened me ne'er
0: looked but on my back. When they shall see the face of Caesar, they are vanished. Julius Caesar Act 2, Scene 2 Rome's greatest popularis was Gaius Julius Caesar, known to his contemporaries as Gaius Caesar and to history as Julius Caesar. He was born in 100 BC, the scion of an old patrician family. His uncle by marriage was Gaius Marius, the famous popularis, and his father-in-law was Marius' close ally Cornelius Cinna. Being Marius' nephew and Cinna's son-in-law during Sulla's reign of repression in 82, placed young Caesar on the defeated side and slated him for proscription. Sulla announced his willingness to spare Caesar's life if the youth would pledge himself to the reactionary cause. And to demonstrate the sincerity of his conversion, Caesar was expected to discard his wife Cornelia, Cinna's daughter, And marry someone chosen by Sulla. Had Caesar been driven primarily by unprincipled ambition and a lust for power, as Cicero claimed, and many Ciceronian historians insist to this day, he would have eagerly accepted this chance to be catapulted into the highest circles as the tyrant's protege. Instead, he spurned Sulla's offer, though mindful of the ruinous consequences. Showing great displeasure, Sulla ordered his arrest and stripped him of his inheritance and his wife's dowry. Some historians report that Caesar saved himself by taking flight after bribing one of Sulla's captains with the considerable sum of two talents, approximately 100 pounds of gold or silver. Others say he survived because Caesar's mother and conservative members of her family used their connections with well-placed Sullen partisans to prevail upon the tyrant to pardon the defiant youth. To those who advised Sulla against eliminating someone so young, he is quoted as saying, Bear in mind that the man you are so eager to save will one day deal the death blow to the aristocracy which you have joined me in upholding. For in this, Caesar there is more than one Marius. For the next few years, Caesar kept a healthy distance from Rome while Sulla's proscriptions were claiming thousands of victims. In 78, news of Sulla's death brought him hastily back to the city. The popular movement was surfacing anew, even seeming to threaten social revolution. With desperate energy, The Senate aristocrats regrouped the sullen forces and granted plenary power to Pompey to repress the disturbances. At this time, Caesar refrained from entering the fray. In 75, Caesar journeyed abroad, most probably to claim a legacy from his deceased friend and former lover, King Nicomedes. On his way, the story goes. He was captured by pirates and held ransom for the huge sum of 50 talents. After weeks of effort, his envoys extracted this amount from the allied coastal municipalities. Many of the pirates were drawn from these same towns. Since the inhabitants often shared in the spoils, it was established that they should be required to make restoration. Upon being released, within the space of a day, Caesar armed some ships and recruited a band of irregulars, who perhaps belonged to a clan that was a rival of his erstwhile captors. His makeshift force surprised the brigands that evening and captured some of their ships. Caesar executed his former captors and pocketed the immense ransom for himself, presumably after paying off his hirelings. Even at this point, there was still nothing to prevent Julius Caesar from taking the well-paved path of an optimate career. He would have been welcomed into the oligarchic camp with open arms and ready rewards. Instead, he moved in the opposite direction, exhibiting a dedication to the popular cause that captured the people's affection. In 73 he supported a measure that would allow the return of pro-Marius political exiles banished during Sulla's reign. That same year, he sided with an interesting democratic leader and Tribune, Licinius Maccaire, in a campaign to undo the sullen decrees that had abrogated the powers of the People's Tribunate. It was Maccaire who helped create a democratic mode of public speaking, utilized by Caesar himself, arming his listeners with factual evidence and precise argument rather than rolling over them with the oratund periods and histrionic locution of classical oratory. Cicero describes Monker as being of unimpressive presence. His looks and manner detracted from the effect of his intellectual prowess, yet he was effective enough. His language was not richly abundant, but neither was it meagre, His voice, gestures, and delivery were entirely lacking in charm, yet his use of original material and his arrangement of what he had to say were so carefully thought out as to be unsurpassed by anyone else in these respects. All we have of Macher's words is a speech preserved in the surviving fragments of Sallust's history. Living under the sullen constitution in the late 70s, Macaire was fully cognizant of the dangerous power wielded by the oligarchs. A tribune such as himself, alone and deficient in resources and with the mere empty semblance of office, could not hope to challenge them without mass support. What an uproar they incite against myself, he remarked. Macaire chastised the plebs for their lack of organized action and their willingness to lease themselves as clientele to aristocratic patrons. You act like a tame herd, notwithstanding your great numbers, allowing yourselves to be possessed and fleeced by the few. By obeying the lordly commands of the consuls and the decrees of the senate, the people fortified the very authority that oppressed them. If they did not struggle to regain their rights and defend their interests, they would only be subjected to still more severe injustices, he argued. Under the pretense of conducting war, the nobles grab control of the treasury and the army, Macaire went on. They tricked the people into believing they are sovereign by waging raucous but vacuous political contests in which voters are allowed to select not their defenders but their masters the populace, he argued, should not allow itself to be bribed with a meager grain disbursement that was not much more than prison rations. Even that paltry handout was grudgingly granted only out of fear of social unrest. Macaire called upon the plebs to withdraw their empowering responses by resisting military conscription and refraining from serving the rich. I do not recommend armed violence or a secession, but only that you should refuse to shed your blood in their behalf. Let those of us who have no share in the profits be free also from dangers and toil. Maquer's career illustrates how a popular leader can be immobilized short of assassination. In 66, while serving as a provincial governor, he was targeted by the optimates and charged with extortion. Presiding over his trial was Cicero himself, who gleefully wrote to Atticus, "I gained more approval by his conviction than I would have gained from his gratitude if he had been acquitted. Fully expecting to be found not guilty, Machaire greeted the news of his conviction with utter dismay, retiring to his home, where he either died of a heart attack or committed suicide in sixty eight Julius Caesar delivered a public eulogy for his aunt Julia, wife to Marius, at whose funeral he boldly displayed images of Marius, something nobody had dared to do since the sullen reaction. In the ensuing years, Caesar went on to win various public offices. As aedile in 65, he used the money of rich associates to organize festivals and spectacles of unprecedented extravagance. And he won appreciation for the great care he gave to public squares and buildings, and for restoring the Appian Way. He also ordered that under darkness, images of Marius be placed in the Capitol. The next day, as word of this spread, Marius's party took courage, and it was incredible how numerous they were suddenly seen to be and what a multitude of them appeared and came shouting into the capital, many extolling Caesar as the one man who was a relation worthy of Marius. In 64, when just 38 years old, Caesar presented himself as a candidate for high priest, Pontifex Maximus, a lifelong prestigious position he occupied without benefit of any deep religious conviction. Plutarch reports that his election, one against two eminent older senators, excited among the Senate and nobility, great alarm, lest he might now urge the people to every extreme of recklessness. Later that year, Caesar and others put together a land reform bill that was designed to be moderate in method, but comprehensive in scope. Allotments were to benefit both the landless poor and army veterans. The holdings would be acquired only from public lands and parcels purchased from landholders willing to sell. Land-rich nobles deeply in debt were guaranteed a good price despite depressed land values. Funds for the program would come from the sale of property and wealth confiscated from overseas dependencies, thereby costing the public treasury little, while finally providing a socially useful means for distributing war booty. On the 1st of January, 63, the newly elected consul Cicero, in his inaugural address before the Senate and in two subsequent orations in the forum, threw the full weight of his office against the land reform bill, misrepresenting its moderate contents and raising alarmist cries that the proposal was a plot against liberty darkly engineered and full of secret purpose Kahn notes that cicero was equating change with subversion depicting any measure to mitigate material misery as a lunge toward revolution the bill was either withdrawn or defeated in an assembly vote this setback must have taught Caesar something about the difficulties of peaceful reform within the existing system. Still, his own career moved forward. He was elected praetor in 62 and proconsul of farther Spain in 61, where he engaged in a victorious military campaign against the Lusitani. It was during these years that he forged political friendships with Crassus and Pompey. The ex-praetor Marcus Crassus, a former subordinate of Sulla, mentioned in the previous chapter as accused of participating in the Catiline plot, owed his celebrity to both money and military endeavor. He amassed vast amounts through investments, becoming a landowner and slumlord. His dubious claim to fame came in 71 BC when he headed the army that delivered the death blow to the great slave rebellion led by Spartacus. He hunted down and killed Spartacus and then crucified 6,000 of his men. Pompey also had begun his military career as an ally of Sulla in 82, whom he served in outstanding fashion, winning the dictator's gratitude and admiration. Summoned back from Spain to help quell Spartacus's rebellion, Pompey arrived in time to partake in the final bloodletting, which he and his associates trumpeted as a major military success, eclipsing Crassus' endeavors. Whatever clashes and feelings of rivalry they may have had, Crassus and Pompey managed to work together, getting themselves elected as consuls for 70 B.C. Pressured by popular agitation, They devoted their year in office to undoing some of Sulla's reactionary edicts. They encouraged the censors to expel 64 senators for gross corruption, and they supported a bill reducing senatorial membership on jury panels to one-third. Most important of all, a law proposed by Pompey lifted the restrictions Sulla had imposed upon the People's Tribunes. These efforts won the applause of the people, and the ire of the Senate and qualified Pompey as a popularis, at least for a spell. Throughout the sixties, Crassus associated himself with the popular cause, supporting Machir when he was hounded by the Optimates in 66, then serving as Caesar's financial backer. By this time, Pompey had won additional fame for his swift and successful campaign against the pirates who had been marauding the Mediterranean. In 60 BC, Caesar invited Crassus and Pompey to join with him in what became known to modern historians as the first triumvirate. Pompey had the prestige of a war hero and presumably the backing of his veterans, Crassus had the money, and Caesar had the support of the plebs. Together they challenged the optimates and emerged for a time as the dominant political force able to undo some of the more reactionary features of the sullen constitution, causing Cicero to denounce them privately as three immoderate men. In the face of heavy optimate opposition, Caesar won the supreme office of consul, serving in 59. Early in his consulship, he submitted another land reform bill, accepted by Pompey and Crassus, not unlike the one proposed in 63. Cicero was invited to serve on the Land Reform Commission, but refused. After the bill was filibustered to death in the Senate by Cato, Caesar applied the tactics of the Gracchi, dealing no further with the Senate and turning to the Popular Assemblies to get the law passed. It was not long before Cicero was complaining that the land distribution program was taking away our rents in Campania. Caesar's fellow consul, Bibulus, the Optimates man, opposed Caesar's reformist measures and tried to paralyze proceedings within the assemblies by forever citing bad omens. Whenever democratic sentiment gained sufficient momentum, it risked being thwarted by religious auspices, auspicia, that is, by divinations of the will of the gods. Auspices were conducted by the College of Augurs, an exclusive aristocratic preserve until the beginning of the first century BC, after which notable equestrians were also inducted. By simply reporting unfavorable omens, the augurs could postpone action within the popular assemblies or invalidate the election of a pro-democratic official. It was customary to regard any sign from heaven as inauspicious and reason enough to suspend public proceedings. Divinations were issued after a ritualized study of the entrails of sacrificial animals, or after observing a sudden flight of birds, a thunderstorm, a streak of light in the celestial firmament, or some other unusual happening. The ruling circles appreciated the conservative veto offered by the auspices. Cicero was explicit on this point. While he privately dismissed augury as nothing more than just so much mummery, he was all for using it as a state weapon against the frenzy of the tribunes and the unjust impetuosity of the people. A century before Cicero, Polybius commented on the political uses of religion. Superstition is actually the element that holds the Roman state together. As the masses are always fickle, filled with lawless desires, unreasoning anger, and violent passions, they can only be restrained by mysterious terrors or other dramatizations. Later on Gibbon wrote, the various modes of worship which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true by the philosopher as equally false and by the magistrate as equally useful. One modern-day conservative historian acknowledges that religious auspices helped to keep things going as they had always gone and to teach the lower classes to know their proper place. So it came as no surprise that Bibulus, having shut himself up in his house through most of his co-consulship, would attempt to trump Caesar and the popular assemblies, by repeatedly announcing inauspicious augurs, ploys that Caesar simply ignored, just as he must have disregarded Bibulus's vetoes. Whatever his popularity, Caesar still lacked the power and prestige of a military hero. Unlike Alexander, Hannibal, and Napoleon, he began his career as a politician rather than as a military leader, Originally intending, in the manner of Pericles and Gaius Gracchus, to attain his reforms without the use of force, he attended to the political arena for eighteen years. Then, at the age of forty, he became convinced that having an army at his back was a surer way when facing off against the death-dealing oligarchy. By that time, the Roman Republic ruled over a far-flung empire extending across the entire mediterranean basin from spain to asia minor caesar added to its possessions and partook of its plunder and bloodletting in 58 he became proconsul provincial governor of cisalpine gaul northern italy and transalpine gaul france and belgium in a series of military campaigns that lasted for nine years he brought all of gaul under roman suzerainty along with portions of Germany. He continued as proconsul for five additional years under a law passed in 55 by Pompey and Crassus, who again were serving as consuls. The alliance between Pompey and Caesar had been cemented by Pompey's marriage to Caesar's daughter, Julia. But Julia died in 54, at a time when Pompey was becoming increasingly uneasy about Caesar's growing popularity and military strength. The following year, the Triumvirate came to an end when Crassus suffered a disastrous military defeat in his campaign against the Parthians in the East, present-day Iraq and northern Syria, and was then treacherously killed while attempting to negotiate with them. The Parthians knew something about Crassus. As Florus reports, they cut off his head and poured molten gold into his mouth, that he whose mind had burned with desire of gold, might when dead and inanimate be burned with gold itself. The death of Crassus not only brought the collapse of the triumvirate, but spelled the beginning of civil war. According to the Roman historian Lucan, Caesar could no longer endure a superior, nor Pompey an equal. Pompey was, according to Dio, greatly displeased by the general praise bestowed upon Caesar, whereby his own exploits were being overshadowed. He attempted to persuade the consuls not to make public Caesar's letters, but to downplay his victories. He reproached the populace for paying little heed to himself and going frantic over Caesar. Sensing Pompey's discontent, the Optimates sought to enlist him to their cause. They feared Caesar as the shrewder and more dedicated popularis of the two. Although he was away on his Gallic campaign through most of the fifties, Caesar still managed to keep a hand in Roman politics, acting through surrogates or himself sometimes returning to Rome during the winter months. Pompey proved receptive to the Optimates' overtures. In 52, the senators designated him sole consul of Rome, in violation of constitutional practice that required two consuls to serve and both to be elected by the assemblies. About that time, they extended his command in Spain for another five years. With Julia dead, Pompey rejected an offer to marry Caesar's great-niece and instead took the daughter of Metellus Scipio, a Senate optimate. He then selected his newly acquired father-in-law to serve alongside him as fellow consul for the remaining months of 52, another unconstitutional move that was perfectly acceptable to the senatorial constitutionalists. Highly influential aristocratic families, such as the Metelli, were willing to truck with Pompey, at least until Caesar could be scotched. In late December of 50, While Caesar was still in Gaul, the conflict between him and the Optimates came to a boil. The Senate decided that a successor should be sent to replace him. The Senate's order was vetoed by Curio, a tribune sympathetic to Caesar. Caesar's counteroffer, put before the Senate by Curio, was that both he and Pompey resign their military commands. This proposal won enthusiastic support among the common people. By a vote of 370 to 22, the Senators readily approved this plan. Here was a chance to avert civil war and disarm both Caesar and Pompey. But this was not good enough for the ultra-conservative optimates, hardened as they were against Caesar. They found a tribune who vetoed the mutual disarmament proposal. If Caesar resigned his command, they must have thought this would not end his political appeal. In any case, there would be little to prevent him from calling up his veterans or levying new recruits at some future flashpoint. The following day, one of the consuls, also of the conservative faction, called on Pompey to take command of two legions. Negotiations continued into early January 49. Acting not at all like someone lusting for kingly power... Caesar again proposed that he and Pompey resign their commands. His message was put before the Senate by a tribune and political ally, Mark Antony, who had succeeded Curio. This time the senators angrily rejected it without debate. The Optimates were now firmly gripping the senatorial reins, driving toward a showdown. With Pompey as their hired sword, they believed they could isolate and vanquish Caesar once and for all, the Senate passed a senatus consultum ultimum along with resolutions of the harshest and most severe nature to end Caesar's command and suppress those distinguished officials the tribunes of the people as Caesar wrote fearing for themselves Mark Antony and another tribune fled Rome making their way north to join Caesar several days later Caesar assembled his troops and recounted all the wrongs he believed had been perpetrated against him by the Senate oligarchs. They had seduced Pompey, played on his pride, and turned him against Caesar. They had used armed force to abrogate the power of the people's tribunes. They had passed a harsh ultimum that normally was reserved for suppressing mutiny or violence, of which there had been neither. They had ordered Caesar to disband his army while Pompey continued to levy troops. Despite Caesar's overtures, Pompey would make no promise to treat with him. Caesar reiterated his offer. We shall both disband our armies. There shall be complete demobilization in Italy. The regime of terror shall cease. There shall be free elections, and the Senate and the Roman people shall be in full control of the government. By submitting our differences to mutual discussion... We shall settle them all. These proposals won the approval of his troops, but were again summarily rejected by Pompey and the Optimates. Pompey, wrote Cicero approvingly, is quite contemptuous of anything Caesar can do and confident in his own and the Republic's forces. For Cicero, a negotiated settlement with Caesar offered nothing more than the dangers of a false peace. The choices Caesar now faced were attended with great danger. If he re-entered Italy with his legionaries, he would spark a civil war, the outcome of which loomed most uncertain. But were he to return without them, he would be powerless to pursue further reforms and risked being done in by the Optimates' assassins. At the very least he would be prosecuted for vote-buying or treason or for having disregarded auspices and vetoes during his first consulship. The trial would be before a carefully selected jury in a courtroom ringed by Pompey's soldiers with a predictable outcome. Assured of the backing of his troops, Caesar struck camp and prepared to march south. On the 10th of January, 49 BC, with only 300 cavalry and 5,000 infantry, the rest of his army was beyond the Alps, He crossed the Rubicon, a small river that separated Cisalpine Gaul from ancient Italy. To this day, as listeners might recognize, to cross the Rubicon means to take an irrevocable step regarding an imposing issue. By moving troops onto Italian soil without permission of the Senate, Caesar was committing an act of treason. Civil war between Pompey and him was now inevitable. As Caesar made his way down the Italian peninsula, the local population began to swing over to his side. Writing a century after the events, Lucan, a sympathizer of the senatorial party, describes Caesar as frantic for war. He would rather burst a city gate than find it open to admit him. He would rather ravage the land with fire and sword than overrun it without protest from the farmer. This was hardly so. Caesar always preferred to make allies of former enemies. In January 49, he eagerly welcomed the allegiance of Italian towns and garrisons as they threw open their gates to him. He vowed to rule without the cruelty and repression that had marked Sulla's reign, declaring, "'Let this be the new style of conquest, "'to make mercy and generosity our shield.' He again called upon Pompey, to prefer my friendship to that of those who have always been his and my bitter enemies, by whose machinations the country has been brought to its present impasse. In mid-March 49, almost three months after he had entered Italy, as Balbus reports to Cicero, Caesar was still eager to restore good relations with Pompey. Cicero himself would have none of it. He continued to wail about Caesar's fiendish campaign to plan debt cancellations, recall anti sullen exiles, and a hundred other villainies. I expect nothing but atrocities from him. The flowery hypocrisy that Cicero long displayed toward Caesar came to full bloom by March 49. In a letter to Caesar, he professed friendship and offered to mediate the dispute with Pompey. And the very next day he wrote to his friend Atticus of his distress regarding Caesar's impending victory. Sometime later he bragged of his cunning, telling Atticus that a missive he sent to Caesar contained no other material except flattery, with not a word about what I really believe. Most of the Italian countryside hailed Caesar. So too did the Roman proletariat in a far cry from the furiously hostile reception they had accorded the troops of the reactionary Sulla decades earlier. Within weeks, Caesar took Rome while Pompey and his forces retreated to Greece where they anticipated greater support. With both consuls and most of the Senate having fled, the People's Tribal Assembly judged that the Republic needed a legally constituted authority It passed a law giving the praetor Lepidus the right to nominate a temporary dictator in place of the absent consuls. As was expected by the people, Lepidus appointed Caesar. Dio says that Caesar committed no act of terror while dictator. Instead, he recalled the descendants of Sulla's proscription, allowing them to return to Rome with all their rights restored after over 30 years of exile. He also granted Roman citizenship to the Gauls, who lived south of the Alps, just beyond the Po. The rest is ancient history. Caesar resigns his dictatorship, but now rules as consul. There follows more than four years of intermittent civil war, resulting in the defeat of Pompey's forces at Pharsalus, northern Greece, in 48. With Caesar in hot pursuit, a vanquished Pompey flees to Egypt. Ministers of young King Ptolemy, wanting neither Pompey as a master nor Caesar as an enemy, kill him. Caesar arrives in Egypt. When presented with Pompey's head, he turns away with sorrow and loathing. Upon receiving Pompey's seal ring, he bursts into tears. Then he puts two of Pompey's assassins to death. Caesar occupies Alexandria with a small force and is besieged by the king's troops. Bolstered by reinforcements that arrive in March 47, the Romans prove victorious. Caesar installs Cleopatra and her younger brother as co-regents of Egypt, finding time to pursue a love affair with her that includes an extended cruise up the Nile. From 48 to 44, Caesar rules Rome, sometimes from afar, in a series of consulships that allows him to initiate wide-ranging reforms, discussed in Chapter 8. After the defeat of Pompey's sons in Spain in March 45, peace is finally restored. Sometime in September or October 45, now at the height of his power, a triumphant Caesar returns to Rome, where he is showered with extravagant honors, including the title of Imperator Perpetuus.
1: He has scarcely six months to live. Chapter 7 You all did love him once. You all did love him once, not
0: without cause. Julius Caesar, Act 3, Scene 2 Gaius Julius Caesar was a man of outstanding qualities, a commending figure, uncommonly intelligent, attractive, and utterly charming when he cared to be. His associate, Sallust, testifies that he was esteemed... FOR THE MANY KIND SERVICES HE RENDERED, AND FOR HIS LAVISH GENEROSITY. AN INSPIRING MILITARY LEADER, HE WAS FAMOUSLY LIKED BY HIS TROOPS, WHOM HE LED WITH A MIXTURE OF ELOQUENT EXHORTATION, BOLD EXAMPLE, IRON DISCIPLINE, AND THE REWARDS OF PLUNDER. UNLIKE MOST MEMBERS OF HIS CLASS, HE DISDAINED LUXURY AND EXCESSIVE SELF-INDULGENCE, THOUGH HE WAS SOMETHING OF A DANDY IN HIS DRESS. Also, unlike many members of his class, he usually refrained from excessive alcohol consumption. Even his enemies admitted that he was a temperate imbiber. As one of them remarked, Caesar was the only sober man who ever tried to wreck the Constitution. Caesar had no need to convince himself that he possessed exceptional qualities, but he strove to make it difficult for others to deny or devalue his abilities. His military exploits demonstrated his mastery over men and situations and promoted his own dignitas, reputation, authority, distinction, adding to his popular support and his ability to effect much-needed reforms. Highly regarded for the elegance and clarity of his writing. Caesar was thought to be one of Rome's greatest prose stylists. His intellectual interests were impressively polymathic. He was a patron of arts and learning and had an expert interest in astronomy. Considered a superlative public speaker, he could stir crowds and touch hearts with his words. Even a renowned orator and bitter political rival like Cicero was obliged to admit that he knew of no one more eloquent, witty, lucid, and endowed with a more varied yet precise oratorical vocabulary than Gaius Caesar. Caesar also possessed some less than perfect traits, to say the least. He was known for his extravagant expenditures of borrowed money through much of his early career. Great sums passed through his hands, enabling him to buy elections, gather political influence, and raise armies. Suetonius observes that he was not particularly honest in his auriferous pursuits, pillaging shrines and temples, and sacking towns especially ones with rich inhabitants. He stole 3,000 pounds of gold from the capital itself, replacing it with gilded bronze. And he extorted nearly 1.5 million gold pieces from King Ptolemy of Egypt. Far worse than that, like other military commanders of his day, including many of the Optimates, he was a despoiler of distant lands. It has been argued that his conquest of Gaul was a blessing in disguise. Deeply divided among themselves, the Gauls could not have withstood the impending onslaught of the Germanic tribes. In their subjugation to Rome, they found peace and stability. Indeed, Gallic units did join Caesar's legions to fight against Dariovistus and other Germanic invaders. But the blessing of Roman conquest offered no deliverance for the tens of thousands who were killed, bereaved, uprooted, enslaved, or otherwise made destitute during years of sanguinary contest. Caesar himself owns to the worst atrocity his troops committed in the siege of Avaricum, when they slaughtered almost 40,000 inhabitants, sparing neither those infirm with age, nor women, nor children. And how do we apologize for his treatment of Vercingetorix, a Gallic leader whose major crime was to wage a valiant campaign against Roman military domination in 52, in a last-ditch attempt to preserve the independence of his people? When finally defeated, Vercingetorix was imprisoned by Caesar. He spent six years in chains, only to be taken from his cell marched through the streets during a triumphal procession honoring Caesar and publicly executed. As in every empire, the common people of the imperial nation itself also paid a price. From the dark soil of Spain to the hot sands of Egypt, the bones of Roman soldiers littered the empire. And of those who survived, what would be sufficient payment for their lost youth? Lucan has Caesar's weary legionaries complaining to him, What limit of warfare do you seek? What will satisfy you if Rome is not enough? We have lost the enjoyment of life. We have spent all our days in fighting. Caesar's sins also included those he shared with his era and his class. He was a slaveholder like all other leading Romans, and like many of them, He used slaves and women for his personal pleasure. Like other Roman leaders, he treated women as negotiable marital objects. He gave his daughter Julia in marriage to Pompey as a step toward cementing their early political alliance, even though Julia was betrothed to Caipio. To appease Caipio's wrath, Pompey promised him his own daughter, although she in turn was already engaged to the late Sulla's son. When Julia died in childbirth in 54 BC, leaving Pompey a widower, Caesar sought to reverse the growing estrangement between them by offering Pompey his great niece Octavia, unmindful that she already had a husband whom she would have to abandon. Caesar further asked leave to marry Pompey's daughter, who was betrothed to Faustus Sulla. That Pompey declined both these proposals was likewise due to considerations more political than personal. Caesar was notorious for his sexual exploits, involving, among others, the wives of numerous aristocrats and several queens, including Cleopatra. The poet Catullus, who despised Caesar's politics, inveighed against his escapades in the boudoir. And shall that wretch with haughty gait exulting in his lofty state around our marriage couches move? Caesar and his friend Mamura who was his chief of engineers in Gaul, were peers in adultery and greed, rival mates among the nymphets, the shameless sods. Upon returning from a victorious campaign, Roman commanders were usually awarded a triumphus, or triumph. This consisted of an elaborate procession followed by feasts, entertainment, and the awarding of honorary privileges to the commander. Immediately after a triumph, it was customary for soldiers to gather before their general and subject him to scurril jests. Such thrusts were intended to take him down a peg, thereby averting the jealousy of the gods. As Marshall writes, after a triumph, No shame is it to a commander to be the subject of wit. So during the celebrations of 46 B.C., Caesar's troops assembled before him and sang a ribald verse suggesting that he bedded women from across the social spectrum. Home we bring our bald whoremonger. Romans, lock your wives away. All the bags of gold you lent him went his Gallic tarts to pay. These, and a number of other jibes, Caesar endured in good spirit. In his younger days, Caesar served briefly as King Nicomedes's catamite. At his triumph, his troops sang a ribald verse about that, too. It went in part, Caesar conquered the Gauls, and Nicomedes conquered Caesar. He received this particular recitation with something less than good humor, and when he tried to deny it, he incurred the additional penalty of laughter. Caesar's early dalliance in Nicomedes' court and several other homosexual encounters later in life left him open to taunts from political enemies including Cicero and Dolabella, Wishing to advertise Caesar's reputation for both adultery and sodomy, one opponent described him as every woman's man and every man's woman. Contrary to the impression we might have, the Romans of the late Republic were an odd mixture of profligacy and prudery. Many seemed to have indulged in same-sex liaisons. Caesar, Catiline, Mark Antony, Gabinius, Sallust, and Augustus are only a few of the better known. Still, homosexuality was not considered an acceptable practice. A century before Caesar, Polybius reported that any soldier in the Roman army who in full manhood committed homosexual offenses risked being flogged to death. The lex cantinia, a law of uncertain date, penalized homosexual acts committed with persons of free birth. To sodomize a fellow citizen was to rob him of his Roman manhood. Same-sex exploitation of slaves, however, carried no penalty. Since a male slave was not thought to possess a manhood, he could not be deprived of it. A common form of political invective was to charge an opponent with effeminacy. Playing the passive role in a homosexual liaison with either anal or oral submission was considered the worst of perversions. Cicero fixed upon this mode of attack in his vendetta against Catiline in 63. He spoke of Catiline's Praetorian guard of pansies and charged that Catiline regularly seduced young men in the most repulsive fashion and he disgustingly allowed others to make love to himself. Cicero even saw homosexuality as a training ground for crime, exclaiming before the Senate, Catiline's insidious seductions that trapped one young man after another have left them well-equipped for a career of dreadful crime or thoroughly stimulated to pursue a life of unrestrained sensuality. These soft and pretty boys are experts at making love and having love made to them, and they know how to dance and sing, but they have also learned to wave daggers about and sprinkle poisons. The animus between the Optimates and their prime adversary, Julius Caesar, could breathe a crude homophobia into their deliberations. As Suetonius tells it, a victorious Caesar once twitted a packed senate house by announcing that he would triumphantly mount the heads of his opponents, an expression that carried a double meaning, the latter implying fallatio. When someone called out that such a feat would not be easy for a woman, Caesar attempted to parry the affront by observing that Semiramis had reigned as queen in Syria and the Amazons once held sway over much of Asia. Virulent homophobia retained a currency well into the imperial era, even while some emperors undisguisedly indulged in same-sex relations. Writing early in the 2nd century A.D., no less a man of letters than juvenile fulminates against the decadence of many upper-class males, the effeminate perfumed lads who painted their eyebrows, donned earrings and see-through dresses, flounced about with hand on hip, and married other men. These fluttering queens, he grouses, acted like no real queen, such as Semiramis bearing the quiver, or Cleopatra on the deck of her Actian warship. In Juvenal's mind, their effeminacy stood in pathetic contrast to the upright Roman warriors of an earlier epoch, the purveyors of an untainted virtus, whose feats of manly courage and sacrifice gave Rome its supposed grandeur. Fuller's summation is doubtless the shared opinion among the many historians who reside in Cicero's camp. Caesar was a supreme opportunist. Possessed of a magnetic personality and boundless egotism, he lacked both fear and scruple, a man who would allow nothing to stand in his way. In fact, Caesar's purpose seems to have been not to destroy Republican liberty, but to mobilize sufficient popular power to break the stranglehold of the senatorial aristocracy, reducing it to an advisory and administrative body. He himself claimed his intent to be the people's champion rather than their master. To be sure, facile democratic professions have dripped from the lips of many an artful autocrat, Still, his words ought to be given some consideration, for they were often backed by actions. In 49, after crossing the Rubicon, he proclaimed I merely want to protect myself against the slanders of my enemies, to restore to their rightful position the tribunes of the people who have been expelled because of their involvement in my cause, and to reclaim for myself and for the Roman people independence from the domination of a small clique. Arriving in Rome some weeks later, he summoned together those senators who had not departed with Pompey and said, I was insulted and outraged by the interference with the rights of the tribunes. My aim is to outdo others in justice and equity, as I have previously striven to outdo them in achievement. Some of the Democrats sought a far-reaching social revolution with the cancellation of all debts and a division of wealth among poor Roman citizens, excluding slaves and foreigners. Caesar found their support useful, but he took care not to tread too hard upon moneylenders and big landowners. Still, as we shall see in the next chapter, his policies were redistributive enough to cause consternation among the upper class. He went far beyond his predecessors in providing for the masses, writes Yavitz, and this was precisely what antagonized the senatorial aristocracy. It was not Caesar's personal ambition that incurred the ire of the optimates. In their world, ambition was of common currency and perfectly acceptable. They loathed his egalitarian sympathies, his long-standing concern for the interests of the people. To be sure, The conflict between nobiles and proletarii was not so neatly placed. There were some senators, not part of the optimate inner circle, who supported Caesar. And there were plebs, freedmen, and foreigners, who, because of clientele enlistments and payoffs, ran with their aristocratic patrons. Still, if not perfectly, then roughly, class lines were drawn in the fight between Caesar and the Senate oligarchs. To this day, defenders of class privilege resort to ad hominem attacks, maligning any leader who pursues policies on behalf of the common people as a self promoting demagogue, a panderer intent upon usurping power. To be sure, no popular leader can afford to be indifferent to considerations of popular power. Mass support is needed as a countervailing leverage to challenge entrenched ruling class interests. In other words, the pursuit of power and the pursuit of egalitarian reform are not mutually exclusive, but mutually imperative. While leaders doubtless derive personal gratification from their acquired renown, it would be a mistake to think that they are motivated only by the pursuit of popularity and power, especially those who align themselves with the powerless and the downtrodden. As we have heard, In the late Republic, siding with the masses was a perilous undertaking, not a promising career choice for ambitious leaders. Few populares enjoyed being snubbed and branded as seditious agitators by their peers. None enjoyed being threatened with bodily harm. None anticipated that by courting the support of unorganized masses, they would win a smooth ride to the pinnacle of power. Those like the Gracchi. Claudius, Caesar, and others who ventured forth as champions of egalitarian causes paid the supreme price for doing so, and were propelled by something more than or in addition to self aggrandizement. And what of the demagoguery of the optimates? Seldom do scholars of the late Republic raise any question about self interested duplicity and aggrandizement in regard to those privileged and powerful elites who advanced their interests by any means necessary. Too many historians seem to share Cicero's glowingly lyrical depiction of his elitist colleagues as men who ruled for everyone's benefit, presiding over the helm of state with all their skill and devotion. Little is said about the misleading demagogic appeals made by Cicero and his cohorts, pretending to be protectors of the people while in fact operating as their expropriators. The optimists come down to us through the filter of gentlemen's history as men of the highest principles. Actually, they stuck only to those principles that fit their notion of the good life as they experienced it. They opposed land reform, rent control, and debt cancellation. More for the many meant less for the few. They opposed the secret ballot, and all forms of popular input. Yet they were demagogic enough when running for public office to represent themselves as friends of the people. A leading protagonist of the Optimate faction was Marcus Porcius Cato, the Younger, hailed throughout the ages as an unblemished keeper of republican rectitude. Plutarch lauds him for being devoted to the rigid justice that will not bend a clemency or favor. Dio says that Cato was the only one of his generation who partook of politics from pure motives without any individual desire of gain. Valerius refers to his brave and unblemished life, his virtue complete on all counts. Valeus says that Cato in every particular of his conduct, seemed more like the gods than mankind. And Sallust describes Cato as propelled only by righteous honesty. Modern historians are almost as effusive, extolling Cato as the formidable high-principled conservative, the redoubtable leader of the oligarchy, and of high birth and character. Even Theodore Mommsen who once slipped and called Cato a dogmatic fool, cannot on other occasions find enough good words for him. Honorable and steadfast, earnest in purpose and in action, full of attachment to his country and its hereditary constitution. Little attention has been accorded Cato's imperfections. Thus, while he pronounced mightily against corruption and swore to prosecute bribery, He indulged in it himself, contributing to a slush fund on behalf of the conservative Bibulus, his son-in-law, when he stood for the consulship in 60, in what amounted to a spree of vote-buying that elicited indignant comment even in that jaded era. The Optimates were intent upon stopping Caesar, who was also spreading largesse among the voters. But when Cato indulged in vote-buying. It was no longer a matter of corruption but of high moral necessity, for bribery under such circumstances was for the good of the Commonwealth. In 51, Cicero was appointed governor of Cilicia, southeastern Turkey. He performed his duties competently and honestly, pocketing only the money that was regularly allotted to him, rather than plundering the province for all it was worth, as was frequently the practice. He also successfully engaged in military actions against brigands in the province. Upon his return in 50, he was awarded for his service with the public thanksgiving by the Senate. Cato voted against the thanksgiving. When asked by Cicero why he had done so, Cato explained not too clearly that in effect, Cicero's provincial administration had been worthy of praise, but not of a public thanksgiving unless the thanksgiving be credited to the gods rather than to him. Immediately afterward, however, Cato voted for a thanksgiving for his son-in-law Bibulus, whose accomplishments were certainly no more notable than Cicero's. It seems the rigorously upright Cato could bend his standards for favored family members. Cato once urged that every candidate for tribune be required to deposit a huge sum of money in order to stand for office, a move that would have undermined the democratic mandate of the tribunate by turning it into a rich man's preserve. In 52 BC, he and Bibulus recommended that the Senate appoint Pompey to rule as sole consul in default of elections and in violation of all constitutional practice. Again in 49, even as other members of the hierarchy remained uneasy about the move, Cato urged the Senate to put the entire state command in Pompey's hands in order to suppress the people's movement mobilizing around Caesar. A few years later, with the clouds of civil war gathering, one senator suggested that freedom should be granted to slaves in order that they might be used for military duty, a proposal that won support among the senators but fixed in his property-loving principles, Cato argued that it was neither lawful nor right to deprive masters of their possessions. On at least two occasions, he defended political murder. As described in Chapter 5, with a vehemence of speech, Plutarch's words, Cato swayed the Senate to uphold. On the basis of dubious testimony, the unlawful execution without trial of Lentulus and other political prisoners implicated in the Catiline Conspiracy of 63. Eleven years later, when the Optimates' gang leader Milo murdered the People's Tribune Claudius, Cato again cast aside legal principles, urging that the murderer not only be freed, but rewarded for services rendered to the state. Cato appeared in court for Milo, and most probably voted for his acquittal. In a word, when popular leaders pursued policies on behalf of the people, Cato treated the obstacle-ridden procedures of the unwritten Constitution as chiseled in stone. But when the optimates needed to bend or even suspend rules and basic rights, as their class interests might dictate, Cato was capable of infinite flexibility. Treating the Constitution as not only elastic, but expendable. The law could be suspended to save the law, even if it meant setting free a murderer like Milo. As Cato saw it, Milo was not a murderer at all, but a defender of the Republic. For Cato, anything done to safeguard the fixed concerns of his entitled coterie was ipso facto constitutional for the interests of the aristocracy were seen by him as confluent with the well-being of the entire polity. According to one of his modern-day admirers, Cato never confused the personal and the political realms and remained without animus towards the person of Julius Caesar. In fact, he hated Caesar, seeing him as representing everything he loathed, self-aggrandizement, contempt for the republic and betrayal of his class as we have heard during a senatorial debate in 63 cato delivered a snarling personal attack upon caesar addressing him without warrant as you drunkard although he voiced disapproval of alcoholic overindulgence in others cato himself was known to tarry frequently in his cups until deeply inebriated Dio claims that Cato was a lover of the people as no other, but his love did not extend to seeing them decently situated. Ergo, he led the attack against Caesar's land reform. Yet even the uncompromisingly conservative Cato could compromise when popular forces marshaled enough strength to force an issue. Thus in 63, as proletarian restiveness seemed to be assuming menacing proportions, he became duly alarmed and persuaded the senate to placate the urban multitude by including them in the grain distribution plutarch calls this an act of humanity and kindness though it appears more an act of grudging expediency designed to successfully dissipate the threatening danger as plutarch himself writes cato was said to have been of impeccable character in his personal affairs but even here one might raise an eyebrow. Aristocratic women were traded like so many game pieces in marriages intended to advance family fortunes or political alliances. Cato was no exception to the practice. First, he gave up his own wife, Marcia, to his very rich elderly friend Hortensius to marry. Hortensius was seeking a community of children with Cato, so he said and Marcia was still young enough to bear offspring. Indeed, she was said to be pregnant with Cato's child when she was passed off to Hortensius. Some years later, when Hortensius died leaving Marcia an immensely wealthy widow, Cato rekindled his interest and remarried her. All this was enough for Caesar to accuse him of trafficking in marriage. For why should Cato give up his wife if he wanted her? Or why, if he did not want her, should he take her back again? Unless it was true that the woman was first set as a bait for Hortensius and lent by Cato when she was young, that he might take her back when she was rich. Cato was devoted to the public, but the public that counted was Cato's own class, the hereditary nobility, Lily Ross Taylor reminds us. Cato's cure for the ills of his day was apparently much like Cicero's in The Republic and The Law's, a return to pre-Gracian days. Today, the Cato Institute, a conservative think tank, is named after the illustrious reactionary because he resisted Caesar's rule and supposedly championed liberty. Needless to say, the narrow class nature of that liberty remains unacknowledged by Cato's admirers. So, too, is Marcus Brutus, hailed as acting only from upright motives. Brutus could not hide his distaste for Caesar's reforms, showing little sympathy for destitute petitioners and much concern for the brimming purses of the rich, especially his own. He was a leading conspirator in the assassination of a great popular leader, who had pardoned him and treated him well. Shakespeare dubs Brutus the noblest Roman of them all, and has him saying, I can raise no money by vile means. By heaven, I had rather coin my heart and drop my blood for drachmas than to wring from the hands of peasants their vile trash. The reality is something else. Brutus was a usurer of the worst sort and a spoliator to boot. Having lent money at 48% interest, instead of the usual twelve percent, which was usurious enough. The noble Brutus then demanded that the Roman military help his agents collect the debt from the hapless Cypriot town of Salamis in 50 BC. At Brutus's insistence, the town council was besieged until five of the elders starved to death. Even Cicero was horrified by the terms of a loan that brought ruination to the Cypriot community. He was also put off by Brutus' arrogant and uncivil tone when dealing with the matter. Brutus once wrote to the people of Pergamum that if they gave money to Dolabella willingly, they must confess that they had wronged Brutus. But if they gave unwillingly, they can prove it by giving willingly to Brutus. On another occasion, he wrote threateningly to the Samians because their contributions were non-existent. Still, most classical historians have not an unkind word for Brutus, preferring to treat this money-grubbing assassin as a principled and unblemished defender of the republic. So there remains a double standard. Leaders who take up the popular standard are faulted as the power-hungry authors of their own unhappy fates, while their assassins are depicted as the disinterested stalwarts of republican virtue. As best we
1: can tell, the Roman people themselves did not see it that way. Chapter 8 The Popularis The evil that men do lives after them.
0: The good is oft interred with their bones. Julius Caesar, Act 3, Scene 2 As a Popularis, Julius Caesar introduced... Laws to Better the Condition of the Poor, as Appian wrote. During his last consulships, 46 to 44 BC, he founded new settlements for veterans of his army and for 80,000 of Rome's plebs, distributing some of the best lands around Capua and elsewhere to 20,000 poor families that had three or more children. Plutarch writes that Caesar's reform law provided that almost the whole of Campania be divided among the poor and needy. Caesar organized public entertainment and feasts, drafted a series of schemes to prevent the Tiber from flooding the city, and imposed new regulations for traffic flow and road maintenance. He planned to drain marshes, using the newly gained land to employ many thousands in tillage. He sent unemployed proletarians to repair ancient cities in the colonies, Or slated them for jobs on public works closer to home he mandated that large landholders were to have no less than one-third of their laborers as freemen instead of slaves a rule that would diminish unemployment brigandage and the landowners inordinately high profits he remitted a whole year of rent for low to moderate dwellings affording much needed relief to poor tenants and he deposited the wealth of vanquished foes in the state treasury to be distributed as gifts and benefits among the Roman citizenry, with each soldier receiving 5,000 denarii and every pleb 100 denarii. Under traditional Roman law, wealthy individuals who murdered a fellow citizen could be sentenced only to exile. Caesar added the punishment of seizure of property For the opulent class, a fate almost more frightening than death itself. Following Gaius Gracchus and other populares, Caesar increased duties on luxury imports to encourage Italian domestic production and to make the rich pay something into the public treasury for their lavish lifestyle. He introduced sumptuary laws that placed strict limitations on ostentatious attire, funeral costs, and banquets. He attempted to impose honest administration in the provinces, where subject peoples had long endured the pitiless exactions of rapacious governors. He ejected from the Senate many of those associated with provincial despoliation. He put a cap on tributes in the more heavily taxed communities and abolished the tithes in Asia and Sicily, substituting a land tax of a fixed amount thus eliminating the much-hated self-enriching tax assessors. Caesar reduced the numbers on the grain dole from 320,000, almost the entire free male population, to 150,000, ridding the swollen lists of fraudulent recipients, including slaveholders who deliberately would free their workforce, then present their slaves' food bill to the state for reimbursement. Caesar prohibited the hoarding of huge sums of cash and eased the desperate straits of a large debtor class by allowing people to repay their debts at lower pre-war rates. He also imposed usury limits on creditors, at the same time forbidding them from suing for any arrears of interest that exceeded the sum of the original loan. He forbade proscriptions, property confiscation, and fines on debtors, He ordered all interest already paid to be deducted from the principal owed, and cancelled the interest due since the beginning of the Civil War. This last measure alone, Suetonius reckons, erased one-fourth of all outstanding debt. It was a measure for which the Democrats had clamored so vehemently, grumbles Momsen. Once again, a serious loss had been inflicted on creditors, Grant comments, but adds with balance... Yet they were obliged to admit that they would never have seen the rest of the money anyway, and that Caesar was not the destroyer of private property his enemies had made him out to be. There are two theories about why people fall deeply into debt. The first says that persons burdened with high rents, extortionate taxes, and low income are often unable to earn enough or keep enough of what they earn. So they are forced to borrow on their future labor hoping that things will take a favorable turn. But the interested parties who underpay, overcharge, and overtax them today are just as relentless tomorrow, so debtors must borrow more, with an ever larger portion of their earnings going to interest payments, leaving even less for their needs and further increasing the pressure to borrow still more. This deepening cycle of debt eventually assumes ruinous proportions, forcing debtors to sell their small holdings, and sometimes even themselves or their children, into servitude. Such has been the plight of destitute populations through much of history, even to this day. The creditor class is more than just a dependent variable in all this. Its monopolization of capital and labor markets, its squeeze on prices and wages, its gouging of rents, are the very things that create penury and debt. The second theory claims that people incur debts because they are spendthrift 'er ne'er-do-wells. The roles of victim and victimizer are reversed. The creditor is now seen as the victim, and the debtor as the victimizer. This model actually does explain some forms of debt, but it should not be applied to the penurious lower classes. In fact, it better describes the improvident science of socially esteemed families la jeunesse dorée, the gilded youth, and not-so-youthful, who live in a grand style, cultivating the magical art of borrowing forever while paying back never, as did Caesar himself during his early career. Such seemingly limitless credit is more apt to be extended to persons of venerable heritage, since their career prospects are considered good. In a letter to Caesar, Sallust inveighs against the young men beset with self-consuming indulgences who squander not only their own patrimony but that of others, forever pursuing new fortunes to repair the ruins of the old. They treat fiscal temperance as tantamount to miserliness and parade their profligacy as a generosity of spirit. Caesar's efforts at easing the oppressive entrapment of debt were designed to help the laboring masses not the dissolute few. He took steps to limit the ascendancy of capital. According to Roman law, a debtor who could not meet his payments became a serf to his creditor. It was Caesar who gave insolvent individuals the right to cede their estates to the creditor, whether it sufficed or not, without having to surrender their personal freedom, a maxim upon which today's bankruptcy laws are based. A person's freedom was mandated to be inborn and unalienable, not bartered away like a piece of property, at least not if one were a free Roman citizen. Caesar was the first Roman ruler to grant the city's substantial Jewish population the right to practice Judaism, a religion that flabbergasted many polytheistic pagans because of its monotheism. As Diocassius remarked, Jews were distinguished especially by the fact that they do not honor any of the usual gods, but reverence mightily one particular deity. Even more puzzling, they believed their god to be invisible and inexpressible, yet omnipresent, and they worship him in the most extravagant fashion on earth, dedicating to him the day of Saturn Saturday, on which, among many other most peculiar actions, they undertake no serious occupation. In an era when polity and religion were inextricably intertwined, Judaism took a position apart from the Roman state. Caesar was acquainted with the Jewish community in Rome, including its poor tanners, dockers, and other laborers. In 47 BC, untroubled by Judaism's singularities, he had the Senate ratify his treaties guaranteeing extraterritorial rights to Jewish settlements throughout the empire as friends and allies of the Roman people. That he had consorted with such a marginalized element as the Jewish proletariat must have been taken by the optimates as confirmation of their worst presentiments about his loathsome leveling tendencies. Caesar granted citizenship to all medical practitioners and professors of liberal arts to encourage them to stay in Rome. He set about to provide Rome with the finest possible public libraries. In 47, he commissioned the prolific scholar and historian Marcus Terentius Varro to draw up plans for a grand new public library modeled after the Great One in Alexandria a project that was left uncompleted after Caesar's death three years later. An enthusiastic supporter of libraries and learning, Julius Caesar has been falsely accused of having burned the Library of Alexandria during his expedition to Egypt in 48-47, to 47, a charge tirelessly reiterated by regiments of writers from Plutarch and Dio Cassius down to modern-day biographers like Gelzer and Walter. Caesar did torch the Egyptian royal fleet in the harbor, and a stock of scrolls stored on the dock may have been destroyed, but the waterfront fire was a substantial distance from the library and did not cause a general conflagration in Alexandria, which would have been the only way the solidly built stone library could have ignited. Writing over two centuries after Caesar's death, Florus says nothing about the Alexandrian library going up in flames, noting only that the fire consumed neighboring houses and dockyards. And Lucan, who would not miss an opportunity to depict Caesar in the worst light, makes no mention of the famous library, writing only that the flames burned the fleet and some houses near the sea. No contemporary accounts allude to the library. Caesar himself says nothing about the fire spreading into town. What he describes is the destruction of vessels at port and in the dockyards. Furthermore, 20 years after Caesar's Alexandrian campaign, the Greek geographer Strabo worked in the two buildings that composed the Alexandrian library, the Serapium, which was the temple and library annex, and the museum, which was the main edifice. He describes them in some detail as perfectly intact. Another overlooked source is Suetonius, who reports that the museum was thriving a hundred years after Caesar and was even adding a new wing to house some of Emperor Claudius's writings. And Gibbon writes that, when Augustus was in Egypt, some fifteen years after Caesar's death, he revered the majesty of Serapis, which, far from being burned, stood undamaged in all its glory. Blaming Caesar for the great library's destruction takes the blame off the real culprits. The Serapium, containing hundreds of thousands of scrolls and codices dealing with history, natural science, and literature, was in fact brought to ruination by a throng of Christ-worshippers, led by the Bishop Theophilus in A.D. 391. This was at a time when the ascendant Christian church was shutting down the ancient academies and destroying libraries and books throughout the empire as part of its totalistic war against pagan culture. The burning of books, Luciano Canfora notes, was part of the advent and imposition of Christianity. As Gibbon describes it, Bishop Theophilus proceeded to demolish the temple of Serapis. The valuable library of Alexandria was pillaged or destroyed and near twenty years afterwards the appearance of the empty shelves excited the regret and indignation of every spectator whose mind was not totally darkened by religious prejudice. The Christians also purged the museum, the main library, over the next two centuries so that by the time it was completely destroyed by Islamic invaders in AD 641 it housed mostly patristic writings. Once Christianity gained ascendancy as the official religion under Emperor Constantine, Rome's 28 public libraries, like tombs, were closed forever, laments the noted 4th century pagan historian Ammianus Marcellinus. In pagan times, the Romans boasted libraries of up to 500,000 volumes. But under Christian hegemony, laypersons were regularly forbidden access to books. The profession of copyist disappeared, and so did most secular writings. By the 6th century, the largest monastic libraries contained collections numbering a paltry 200 to 600 books, predominantly religious in content. Livy commented that the writing of the history of the Roman people is a time-honored task that many have undertaken. Yet almost all of these many Roman histories are lost to us. Of course, the ravages of time and fortune take their toll, but so little of the prolific literature of the pagan era has survived, thanks in good part to the systematic campaigns waged by the Jesus proselytes against library archives, secular learning, and literacy in general. Though depicted as an oasis of learning amidst the brutish ignorance of the Dark Ages, the Christian Church actually was the major purveyor of that ignorance. Christianity's crusade to eradicate heathen culture and scholarship, a story not yet fully explored by latter-day scholars, was not only directed against historiography, but carried over into the suppression of astronomy, biology, mathematics, medicine, anatomy, philosophy literature theater music and art still this factoid about caesar's burning of the alexandria library dies hard as scores of historians in their time-honored fashion uncritically reiterate each other's misinformation without benefit of independent investigation Plutarch faults Caesar for promulgating legislative proposals during his first consulship in 59 BC that were designed simply to please the commonality. Likewise, Dio Cassius maintains that during his first consulship Caesar wished to court the favor of the entire multitude, that he might make them his own to an even greater degree. Neither Plutarch nor Dio allow that Caesar might have pursued reformist policies because he was responding to popular pressure and because he believed such reforms were just and beneficial to Rome and its people. Nor does Cicero, who voiced the fears of his privileged class by equating redistributive reform with apocalyptic revolution. I foresee a bloodbath, an onslaught on private property, the return of exiles and cancellation of debts. He believed Caesar would show no mercy in killing off the nobility and plundering the well-to-do. Others have coupled Caesar with Sulla, the blood-letting autocrat. Thus, Shackleton Bailey writes of The Autocratic Regimes of Sulla and Julius Caesar. Sir Ronald Syme goes further, implying that Caesar was even more self-aggrandizing than Sulla. He had to curb the people's rights as Sulla had done, but Sulla resigned once he finished his reforms, for unlike Caesar, he had no desire to rule supreme and alone. The Roman plebs, though far less learned than our historians, were able to distinguish between the reactionary Sulla, whom they despised, and the reformist Caesar, whom they supported. Sulla imposed a retrogressive constitution, He suppressed any attempts at popular reform, stripped the people's tribunes of their ancient democratic authority, imposed a bloody terror upon popular forces, vested supreme power in the senatorial oligarchy and abolished the grain dole. Caesar did much the opposite. He initiated popular reforms, restored the tribune's authority, avoided the use of terror, made alliances with popular leaders, divested the senatorial oligarchy of much of its power, and maintained the grain dole. If he was criticized by some Democrats of his day, it was not for his resemblance to Sulla, but for not going far enough on debt abolition and other reforms, and for expending too much time and blood on foreign conquest. Unlike Sulla, Caesar showed remarkable clemency toward his enemies after the Civil War, in some instances, not only sparing their lives and property, but restoring them to honors and office. He removed the ban on the families of those who had warred against him, as even Dio admits, granting them immunity with fair and equal terms. To the wives of the slain, he restored their dowries, and to their children, granted a share in the property, thus putting mightily to shame Sulla's blood guiltiness. In 46, At the height of his fame as a military hero and domestic leader, he was showered with lavish awards and powers by the Senate, including the consulship for five consecutive years and the right to sit among the tribunes and exercise a veto. Appian reports that as consul, Caesar began regularly to bypass the Senate and deal only with the People's Tribal Assembly. Some gentleman historians see this as evidence of his tyrannical disregard for the Constitution. It might just as well be seen as a democratic move away from the oligarchic senatorial system. John Dickinson charges that Caesar's moves to disempower the Senate were unaccompanied by any resolve to transfer power to popular institutions. His intent was to maintain a personal absolutism. Actually, Caesar's rulings from his first consulship in 59 to his last years as imperator were regularly sanctioned by decrees from the tribal assembly. It is not certain what Caesar would have done had he lived. His treatment of Athens suggests that he would have been receptive to democratic rule. During the time that Rome held imperial sway over Athens, the Athenian aristocrats, colluding with the Roman oligarchs, presided as a kind of comprador class over their own people. During the Civil War, they naturally supported Pompey, the Optimate's man. A victorious Julius Caesar pardoned the Athenian nobles, but much to their disgust, he allowed the city to adopt a democratic constitution, one that departed from a century of Roman-imposed aristocratic rule. The common people of the other Greek cities that were ruled by Rome refused to stand against caesar and openly resisted their pompeian commanders in some cases they threw open their gates or sent deputations to caesar pledging their allegiance caesar also enfranchised the population in cisalpine gaul after the ides of march mark antony published caesar's plan to grant roman franchise to sicily cicero complained that caesar had planned to confer Citizenship not merely on individuals, but on entire nations and provinces. One of Caesar's first acts upon becoming consul was to have the proceedings of the Senate and Assembly publicly posted daily, making both bodies more accountable to the citizenry. During his first consulship in 59, he regularly disregarded auspices. He updated and streamlined the voter registration rolls and he decisively terminated Cicero's political witch-hunts against popular leaders, supporting Claudius in driving Cicero into exile in 58, for what proved to be only a brief period. During his later consulships, he divested the senatorial oligarchy of its unaccountable executive powers, including its control over the treasury, and secured the power of the People's Tribunate to initiate legislation. Whether such moves are deemed despotic or democratic depends on the perspective from which they are viewed. He accumulated individual power in order to break the oligarchic stranglehold and thereby initiate popular reforms. Without too much overreaching, we might say his reign can be called a dictatorship of the proletarii, an instance of ruling autocratically against plutocracy on behalf of the citizenry's substantive interests. Fully alive to the divisions that racked Roman society, Caesar offered a forecast that would prove prophetic. It is more important for Rome than for myself that I should survive. I have long been sated with power and glory, but should anything happen to me, Rome will enjoy no peace a new civil war will break out under far worse conditions than the last. How did Caesar hope to avoid another civil war? With reforms well short of revolution, he would rein in the plundering excesses and worst abuses of the rich while giving something more to the toiling multitude, including a greater role in governance. The governing posts that demanded special confidence were filled by Caesar as far as other considerations permitted, with his slaves, freedmen, or followers of humble birth. He promoted plebeians to the patriciate and increased the size of the senate from 600 to 900, filling its ranks with equestrians and eminent provincials from Spain and Gaul. He even made senators of centurions, soldiers, scribes, and a small number of libertini, the latter being sons of liberated slaves who had risen to distinction on their own merit. He seemed to be following Sallust's surprisingly egalitarian advice. Let no one be thought more qualified, on account of his wealth, to pronounce judgments on the lives and characters of his fellow citizens, nor let any anyone be chosen praetor or consul from regard to fortune, but to merit. Needless to say, these newly created senators, Men of humble antecedents were snubbed by the senatorial bluebloods and money bags. In a letter to his rich friend Atticus, Cicero, unmindful of the slights he himself endured at the hands of the optimates, or perhaps compensating for them, complains of the newcomers. Ye gods, what a following! What desperate gangs! Centuries later, Gibbon describes Caesar's introduction of Soldiers, strangers, and half-barbarians into the Senate As an abuse of scandalous proportions In modern times we have the estimable Sir Ronald Syme Who dismisses the new senatorial appointees as nothing more than A ghastly and disgusting rabble The same nobles who supposedly were so protective of Republican rule Showed only hostility toward Republican education The first school for the study of Latin rhetoric, opened in Rome circa 95 to 93 BC by a supporter of Marius, was closed soon after by aristocratic censors who felt the schoolmaster was assigning politically unacceptable topics. The censors opposed all efforts at cultivating the oratorical gifts of youthful commoners who might incite democratic audiences and compete in courtrooms or election campaigns With the young bloods of aristocratic families. The oligarchs were determined that nobody but their own sons and other well placed class collaborators should be armed with the weaponry of rhetoric and other such educational advantages. So they set about shutting down the unwelcome innovators. Popular schools of Latin oratory were not reopened until the consulships of Julius Caesar. On this issue, too, It was not he, but his enemies who sought to shut out Rome's citizenry from Republican governance. All this said, there are aspects of Caesar's career that suggest something other than popular rule. He was made prefect of morals, praefectus moribus, and arranged that half the magistrates be nominated by himself, again bypassing the Senate. He could sit on the cure-rule chair between the consuls at all meetings and speak first on all questions. His triumphal chariot was placed on the capital opposite Jupiter's. Also on display was a bronze statue of him, erected on a monument of the world, with an inscription, later removed on his orders, that in effect pronounced him a demigod. The Senate appointed him imperator for ten years imperator has been translated too often as dictator it is more akin to commander-in-chief or supreme commander in latin even dictator carries a rather different meaning from its present-day english usage a dictator was a magistrate appointed in times of crisis and given absolute authority for a maximum six-month or one-year term The senators heaped unprecedented and extravagant honors upon Caesar, more in the spirit of bandwagon trepidation than genuine admiration. There was also the suspicion that some of them were seeking to compromise him in the eyes of his followers by stirring popular uneasiness about his accumulated power and glory, stoking the Roman people's historical hatred of kings. Although he knew the difference between flattery and goodwill, Caesar did not decline the lavish honors while ostentatiously refusing the crown and avoiding the despised title of king he took on the trappings of a monarch he wore purple regal attire put his image on coins and filled the calendar with commemorations of his birthday and his military victories in early 44 the last year of his life he intended to occupy the office of consul for life with the new title of Imperator Perpetuus, thereby giving his enemies additional cause to cast themselves as righteous tyrannicides. It is always assumed that a leader who so promotes himself is motivated only by vainglorious impulse. It may also be, or even primarily be, a way of strengthening his public image, thereby maximizing his political clout, Caesar's concern was not to lord over the common people, but to outdo a powerfully entrenched aristocratic oligarchy. By elevating himself above that plutocracy, he was more likely to attain success with his reform agenda. It seems not the case that Caesar wanted to rule in the manner of a divine monarch, as did the Roman emperors who came after him. Jane Gardner remains refreshingly out of step on this point arguing that during the period of his dictatorship at Rome, the myth that he wanted to make himself a king or even a Hellenistic-type king worshipped with divine honors was first propagated by his enemies. It has since been taken up by historians and others in later generations who have shown themselves ready to accept the gossip put about by his detractors. Momsen concludes that Caesar was a democratic king whose goal was the gradual equalization of the classes actually Caesar never intended to level rich and poor but he certainly did seek to roll back some of the worst class abuses perpetrated by the wealthy he gave the poorest plebs and deracinated farmers a chance to own land of their own and generally he expended the opportunities for commoners to advance in 49 B.C. He attempted to enforce a law that limited private holdings at 15,000 drachmas in silver or gold, thereby leaving no one in possession of immeasurably large fortunes. The people were enthusiastic about this reform and were prepared to go further. They urged that servants be rewarded for reporting masters who sequestered treasure beyond the allotted sum. But Caesar refused to add such a clause to the law vowing that he would never trust a slave to testify against his master even the great popularis had his class-bound limits one of caesar's more lasting and uncontroversial reforms was his reconstruction of the roman calendar the romans counted the years from their city's legendary origin a method of reckoning that prevailed into the christian era for a full five centuries thus julius caesar was assassinated in auc 710 ab urbe condita meaning from the founding of the city it was sometime around auc 1277 to 1280 or what later became known as ad 523 to 526 during the reign of pope john i that the monk and scholar Dionysius Exiguus devised the B.C. A.D. mode of distinguishing the non-Christian and Christian eras. So today we say Caesar was killed in 44 B.C. He met his fate on the 15th of March, the Ides of March. The Romans had an unwieldy way of keeping track of days. They divided a month into three sections— the Kalends or calends, was the first day of every month, the nones, the seventh day of some months and the fifth or ninth of others, and the ides, the fifteenth of some months and the thirteenth of others. Dates were cited from these three fixed points. In Caesar's day, the Roman lunar calendar was lagging almost three months behind the solar year, so that holidays were falling out of season and estimates regarding harvests and planting were of little reliability. Caesar, who himself had a strong interest in astronomy, laid the problem before the best astronomers and mathematicians of his day. Drawing upon their efforts, he devised a system of his own that was more accurate than any other. It discarded the lunar method and matched solar movement and time. Beginning in 45 B.C., The Julian calendar served for more than 1,600 years. The new calendrical system, however, did miscalculate the solar year by 11 minutes, gradually falling out of synchronization with the annual solstices and equinoxes. Accordingly, in AD 1582, Pope Gregory XIII slightly modified the formula for leap years and set the date ahead 10 full days. Aside from these few adjustments, The calendar we use today is essentially the Julian version, owing far more to the efforts of Caesar and his astronomers than to Gregory and his. But given Christianity's dominion over the Western world, it comes down to us
1: as the Gregorian calendar, with no tribute rendered unto Caesar. Chapter 9 The Assassination cowards die many times before
0: their deaths the valiant never taste of death but once julius caesar act two scene two for brutus is an honorable man so are they all all honorable men julius caesar act three scene two the story of caesar's assassination comes down to us as a mixture of fact and fiction Presented here with due caution for its less probable parts. The conspirators were preparing to do away with Caesar even as they paid homage to him. As Dio writes, the honors they heaped on him were all in excess, some as an act of extreme flattery toward him, and others as sarcastic ridicule because they wished to make him envied and disliked as quickly as possible, that he might the sooner perish. So they strove to embitter even his best friends against him by calling him King, a name often heard in their deliberations. The conspiracy was hatched, if we are to follow Plutarch, when Gaius Cassius broached the subject with his brother-in-law Marcus Brutus and prevailed upon him to join in the undertaking. Cassius and Brutus had fought under Pompey, only to be pardoned by Caesar after the war, A surprise participant in the plot was Decimus Brutus, only distantly related to Marcus, one of Caesar's intimate associates and most competent officers in Gaul, who in the end felt a greater loyalty to his aristocratic class than to his commander's reform agenda. A long-standing legend has it that Caesar harbored a special fondness for Marcus Brutus because he was born at the time Caesar was having a protracted love affair with his mother. Servilia, and may have been Caesar's own son. This silly tale is as old as Plutarch and Appian, and as recent as Will Durant. As historical myths go, it is of unimposing magnitude. Still, it is curious how it survives to this day, given that Caesar was barely 15 years old when Brutus was born in 85 BC. By the time Caesar first slept with Servilia, her son must have been 20 years old or more. It is reported that Caesar was much concerned for Marcus Brutus's safety at Pharsalus, issuing orders to his commanders that on no account must he be slain in the fighting. If Brutus surrendered, he was to be taken alive. If he resisted capture, they were to let him go without violence. But Caesar did this not because of a suspected paternity, but for the sake of Brutus's mother, who was said to be one of the few real loves of his life. The conspirators numbered about 60, according to Suetonius. Appian identifies 15 by name. They included many of the leading citizens of Rome, the men most prominent for their ancestry, their prestige, and their personal qualities, as Plutarch describes them. A paramount figure, Cicero, was not asked to participate even though Cassius and Brutus knew he would be well disposed to the deed. They feared that Cicero's inborn timidity, plus the caution that advanced age had put on him, and his insistence on eliminating the smallest risk to any plan, might blunt their resolve at the very moment when decisive action was imperative. One strategy they considered was to wait for the consular elections when Caesar would situate himself on the wooden bridge used by voters walking to the pole. Some of the conspirators could topple him over the rail while their confederates lurked below with daggers drawn. Another possibility was to attack him while he was en route to one of several public ceremonies. It soon became known that Caesar was planning to leave the city on the 18th of March for a military campaign against the Jedi and the Parthians whom Roman leaders had long considered to be threatening in the East. Once embarked on that venture, he would be beyond the assassin's reach. So when it was announced that he was meeting with the Senate on the 15th of March in a hall adjacent to the Theater of Pompey, in what probably would be his last public appearance before departing, the plotters fixed upon that occasion to strike. A Senate session would provide a perfect cover for the large group of accomplices to muster their full strength without inviting unwanted attention. Their avowed purpose was tyrannicide, historically a most righteous act in Roman eyes, as with the Greeks. Their effort, therefore, would be greeted not as treason, but as a highly principled feat performed on behalf of the common interest, or so they presumed. Few ancient or modern historians take note of the actual politico-economic interests underlying the assassination, so it is a pleasant surprise to come upon the following comment in such an unlikely place as Major General Fuller's biography of Caesar: The plotters were well aware that under Caesar's autocracy their opportunities for financial gain and political power would vanish, and the prestige of the Senate would be obliterated by further delusions. In short, the way of life the senators had been following since the Second Punic War would end. Their struggle against reforms had opened with the murder of the Gracchi, and they fondly imagined that it could be closed by the murder of Caesar. Blinded by their arrogance and corrupted by their avarice, they overlooked the causes of the struggle and persuaded themselves that were Caesar removed, the Republican machinery would at once begin to function. Having agreed on a time and place for the deed, the conspirators still were divided over what specific course to pursue. Some also wanted to do away with Mark Antony, Caesar's co consul and Lepidus, his loyal cavalry commander. Both held great sway with the army. Antony had ruled frequently in Caesar's name when the latter was abroad and had considerable influence among the plebs. But Brutus thought it impolitic to kill all three. Neither Antony nor Lepidus could be accused of aspiring to kingship. And Antony, suspected of having wavered at times in his loyalty to Caesar, might subsequently prove useful to the conspirator's cause. If they concentrated on Caesar alone, they would win glory for having done away with a king and tyrant. But if they also slew his associates, they would be accused of engineering a coup, acting out of partisan enmity as vengeful proselytes of the Pompey faction. This argument carried. This also might explain why they decided to do the dirty work themselves instead of delegating it to hired thugs, as was the less risky mode of aristocratic skullduggery. Caesar was no common magistrate to be dispatched by low-life assassins, who in any case might have trouble getting close enough to him undetected or might prove to be of dubious reliability when confronting such an awesome prey. More than a mere political assassination, the deed was to be paraded as a glorious tyrannicide, a lesson for generations to come. To remove the usurper and save the Republic, only Rome's sterling leaders could qualify for such an upstanding historic mission. On the penultimate day of his life, during the course of conversation while dining with Lepidus and a few other intimates, Caesar posed an unsettling question What is the best sort of death? After his companions ventured various opinions, he himself commented that a sudden, unexpected end was the one he would prefer. That night, the story goes, his wife Calpurnia dreamed of seeing him lying in her lap with many wounds and streaming with blood. The next morning, much distraught, she implored Caesar not to stir from the house and to postpone the Senate session. His wife's remonstrance gave him pause, since she ordinarily was a composed and level-headed individual, not given to womanish superstitions, as Plutarch puts it. Plutarch himself was richly freighted with superstitions, presumably male-gendered, He tells us that just before Caesar's death, fire issued from the hand of a soldier's servant yet left him unburned. All the doors and windows of Caesar's house suddenly flew open of their own accord as he slept, and an animal sacrificed by Caesar was found to contain no heart, a very bad omen, because no living creature can subsist without a heart, the great historian reminds us. Suetonius and Dio also record portents. A herd of Caesar's horses displays a sudden repugnance for the pasture and sheds buckets of tears. A little kingbird flies into Pompey's hall only to be torn to pieces by a swarm of other birds, and other such unmistakable signs forewarning Caesar of his assassination. Omens aside, the political climate was disquieting enough. At least two years before his death, Caesar had his own misgivings about conspirators afoot. In a Senate speech in 46, Cicero sought to reassure him, As for your own deeds, Gaius Caesar, no genius could be abundant enough, no pen or tongue sufficiently eloquent and fluent to embellish them or even to describe them. As for Caesar's suspicions about some sinister and treacherous conspiracy, they were unfounded. For who would possibly want to harm him? Surely not his former opponents, the defeated Pompey supporters like Cicero himself, who had been allowed to return to Rome and the Senate with their properties intact, and who were now his staunchest and most appreciative friends. I think of you day and night, cooed the great orator who pledged to remain eternally vigilant against would-be perpetrators. Since you feel there is some hidden danger to guard against, we senators promise you sentinels and bodyguards, and we swear we will protect you ourselves with our own breasts and bodies. Such cloying reassurances failed to put Caesar at ease about his newfound friends. Shortly before the Ides of March, he voiced his suspicion that Cassius was up to no good. Plutarch has him saying, "'What do you think Cassius is aiming at? "'I don't like him. He looks so gaunt.' Caesar said he entertained no fear of such fat, luxurious men as Mark Antony and Dolabella, but rather the pale, lean fellows such as Cassius and Brutus.' Thus did Plutarch inspire Shakespeare's memorable lines. Antonius, let me have men about me that are fat. Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look. Now on the fateful morning of the 15th of March, uneasy about Calpurnia's dream, Caesar turned to Antony, who had just arrived at his house, and instructed him to go postpone the Senate session. But Decimus Brutus one of the few to have regular access to his residence, entered as Antony was about to leave. On hearing of Caesar's decision, Decimus strongly urged a reconsideration. The senators have been waiting in attendance for some time, having been called into session by Caesar. Imagine their reaction if someone arrives and dismisses them until such time as Calpurnia should chance to have more pleasant dreams." he must not give his opponents further pretext for taking umbrage, fueling the charge that his rule is insultingly arbitrary. Is it like Caesar to hide behind a woman's fears or give such weight to superstition? Even if he were strongly inclined to think the day unfavorable, it would be more fitting if he went to the Senate and himself announced that he was postponing the meeting to a later occasion. Caesar was persuaded. He allowed Decimus to walk him out of the house to where his litter-bearers waited. As the litter moved through the gathered crowd, Artemidorus, a Greek teacher of logic and former tutor of Marcus Brutus, having caught wind of the conspiracy, sought to warn Caesar. Accounts vary. Some have Artemidorus running to Caesar's house after his departure, then failing to catch up to the litter-bearers. Others having reaching Caesar and urgently handing him a note outlining the plot, but given the press of petitioners, Caesar had no chance to read it. Others say it was someone else, perhaps a servant, who gave Caesar the note. All sources seem to agree that some vain attempt was made to alert him. Before entering the hall, it is said that Caesar confronted Spurina, the soothsayer, who previously had warned that a calamity would befall him no later than the Ides of March. The Ides of March are come, he chided Spurina, who responded, Yes, they are come, but they are not yet past. Forgoing further divinations and pressed forward by enemies who pretended to be his friends, he made his way into the Senate House. For Caesar had to suffer Caesar's fate, as Appian phrases it. No personal guard accompanied him, for his dignitas forbade that he should betray apprehension, especially before the very Senate that was pledged to guard his life. He is quoted as saying, there is no worse fate than to be continuously protected, for that means you are in constant fear. The conspirators stationed a backup complement of gladiators in the adjoining theater. Who could rush to their assistance should senators loyal to Caesar give them trouble. They were especially concerned about Mark Antony, a physically powerful man, not easily routed. He would likely be situated close to Caesar. So they contrived to have Gaius Trebonius, Antony's acquaintance and one of the conspirators, detain him in conversation outside the hall. Upon Caesar's entrance, everyone rose to his feet a group of senators quickly gathered about him in an apparently friendly manner. Caesar had scarcely occupied the ceremonial chair when one of them, Tilius Simber, petitioned that his brother be allowed to return from exile. Caesar waved him aside. This was not the time for such a matter. They could pursue it on some other occasion. Others moved close, pretending to join in the request. Then suddenly... Tilius laid hold of Caesar's robe, yanking it down from his shoulder, the signal for the assault. The first blow came from behind, delivered by a trembling Publius Casca. It missed its mark, grazing Caesar about the shoulder. He whirled about, seizing his assailant by the arm and wounding him with the stylus he used for writing. Caesar then bolted forward, only to be slashed in the face by Cassius. Desperately flaying at his attackers and issuing furious cries like a trapped beast, he took another blade into his side, then swift thrusts into his thigh, his back, and his groin, until he staggered and collapsed, some say at the base of Pompey's statue. Even then the assailants continued savaging him with their daggers, some of them accidentally cutting each other in the melee. Suddenly all was quiet. Caesar lay motionless Bleeding to death from 23 stab wounds At this point Marcus Brutus Turned to the Senate Assembly To reassure them that all was well He would now set forth the reasons Behind this act of tyrannicide Certainly here was an apt venue For discoursing on the more unsavory Imperatives of Republican restoration But the senators were in no mood For a civics lesson Frozen in astonishment for the brief seconds of the onslaught, they began stampeding out of the hall, tripping over each other as they fled, some fearing they might be the next victims, others just wishing to distance themselves from the murder and all its frightful implications. Brutus and his confederates followed them out, triumphantly brandishing their blood-stained weapons. Being still hot from their exploit, They marched as a body, not like perpetrators who thought of taking flight, but with an air of lordly assurance, calling to the people to reclaim their liberty and inviting persons of rank to join them. Some of the latter did enter their procession, acting now as if they too were authors of the bloody design and could claim a portion of its honor. In the empty meeting hall. Caesar's body lay crumpled in lonely silence throughout much of the day. Eventually three of his slaves ventured in and carted it away. Thus did Gaius Julius Caesar meet his sorry fate in his 56th year on the Ides of March, 44 B.C. Forty years earlier, on that very day, A graceful, handsome, 16-year-old youth strode amidst a joyous gathering of family and friends who prayed that the divinity might fashion a brilliant destiny for him. It was a festival celebrating the threshold of spring on the Italian peninsula when living things are touched by the sweet stirring of nature reborn and people lift their hearts in the hope of better times to
1: come. In the wake of Caesar's death alarm spread throughout the city a crowd gathered at the forum
0: to listen in uneasy silence to the assassins who had much to say against caesar and much in favor of the democracy they had killed him they insisted not to take power or any untoward advantage but so that all romans might be governed rightly the assassins with their sympathizers, paid clientele and armed gladiators, then repaired to the Capitoline, line, where they offered sacrifices and remained through the night. Learning of what had happened, Lepidus occupied the forum with his soldiers that same night. At dawn, he delivered a fiery speech against the bloody deed. The angrily concurring shouts of the gathered crowd could not have escaped the assassin's ears, since the Capitoline. line as can be seen to this day, was hardly a hundred meters beyond the forum. How Caesar's legions were to be neutralized is a question that seems to have escaped the conspirators. Perhaps they assumed that an army bereft of its audacious commander would be unable to concert against the nobility. And what of the plebs Urbana and plebs Rustica, who had benefited from Caesar's reforms, Would they not riotously contest a senatorial coup? If anything, the assassins expected the commoners of Rome to hail them as saviors of the Republic. For a brief spell after the assassination, Cicero himself remained convinced that the whole population is inspired by craving for liberty and disgust for their long servitude. And The whole citizen community appreciates having been freed of the tyrant. To Decimus Brutus, he wrote, the people of Rome look to you to fulfill all their aspirations and pin upon you all their hope of eventually recovering their freedom. Such a view of the people was not entirely hallucinatory. There certainly were citizens who feared that Caesar had aspired to monarchy. He had made a grand show of declining the diadem. However, it was accordingly suspected that he was anxious for the title, but wished to be somehow compelled to take it, and the consequent hatred against him was intense. Songs and posters expressed opposition both to the foreigners whom Caesar had appointed to the Senate and to his entire reign, which in the eyes of some had come to resemble that of a king in all but name. And probably some Democrats were put off by his apparently monarchical pretensions and by what they saw as the halfway nature of his reforms. Even the commons began to disapprove of how things were going, writes Suetonius, and no longer hid their disgust at Caesar's tyrannical rule, but openly demanded champions to protect their ancient liberties. Still, we might wonder whether these historians were not wishfully overstating the antagonism that the plebs nursed for their imperator. We might also wonder if the opposition songs and posters were not fashioned by the hired clientele of Caesar's enemies, being more an instigation than a symptom of popular disaffection. In any case, if Caesar was intensely hated as a usurper, it was not by most. While the plebs overwhelmingly opposed a kingship for him, they still supported much else he had done or was trying to do, including the very policies that moved the assassins toward their deed, As even Dio allows, Caesar enjoyed a great repute not alone for bravery in war, but for uprightness in peace. Early in the game, Cassius and his confederates convinced themselves that they were going to kill an isolated tyrant a lone incubus who infected the body politic. In fact they moved against a leader who enjoyed enthusiastic support among a large portion of the polity. The perpetrators correctly understood that the people were averse to monarchy. From this they incorrectly concluded that the people saw Caesar as the worst of kingly tyrants. Contrary to senatorial expectations. The assassination did not bring a quick restoration of the traditional republic, nor were the assassins hailed as saviors. Instead, as Caesar himself had predicted, his untimely death let slip the dogs of war. The day after the assassination, the senators gathered afresh in the Senate House, situated on the hill just across from the Capitol line. Speaking with unusually deep intensity, Mark Antony addressed them. Do you think men who served in Caesar's army will stand and watch while his body is dragged in the dust and broken and thrown aside unburied? For these are the penalties prescribed for tyrants by the law. How will the populace here in Rome act and the people of Italy? I proposed that we ratify all Caesar's acts and projects, and confer no praise of any kind on the lawbreakers, assassins, but spare their lives, if it be your wish, simply from pity, for the sake of their families and friends." This seemed the most inviting course. The senators decided to retain Caesar's reforms in the hope of placating a seething populace and restive army. They also agreed to give Caesar a state funeral, instead of defiling his body. And as Antony advised, they voted to spare the lives of the assassins, whom in any case they had neither the desire nor the means to apprehend. The assassins must have become uncomfortably aware of the grim-faced legionaries who stood about in the forum, fingering the hilts of their swords. Some of these veteran warriors doubtless were ready to march up to the Senate House and lay waste to every toga in sight. Others among them may have felt secretly relieved, thinking they were seeing an end to military campaigns now that Caesar was gone. Too many years away from home, too many wounds and lost comrades had they endured. But whatever their feelings, All of them were concerned that they might lose the modest land allotments and cash prizes their imperator had promised them. The civilian population, too, was demanding guarantees that Caesar's reforms not be rolled back. With cries of, Avenge Caesar, issuing from the public areas just below the Senate House, Brutus grudgingly reassured the demonstrators after first sniping disapprovingly at the whole practice of land redistribution, that they would retain what land they had been given, and no man shall take it from you, not Brutus, not Cassius. He and his confederates sent a letter to the Forum proclaiming that they would deprive no one of their promised allotment and would not attempt to undo Caesar's laws. They offered these concessions to assure a state of harmony binding themselves by the strongest oaths that they would be honest in everything. Meanwhile, the hired part of the crowd, as Appian describes those in league with the assassins, shouted for peace for the city in an attempt to drown out the cries for vengeance. Cicero, too, on the day after the assassination, played the great peacemaker, or perhaps the crafty tactician, calling for calm and unity in a splendid-sounding speech before the Senate. He argued that taking revenge for Caesar's death would only lead to further conflicts. He urged everyone to remember that they were all Romans, so to cleanse themselves of bitterness and ill spirit and show generous regard for one another. He also recommended that Caesar's reforms be retained, if only to maintain peace and tranquility. Privately, Cicero vented his outrage that Caesar's reforms remained in place. Is it not lamentable that we should be upholding the very things that made us hate Caesar? he wrote to Atticus. And he could not contain his delight about the assassination, gushing forth about how the Ides of March increased so much my love for Marcus Brutus. To Brutus himself, he wrote, That memorable, almost godlike deed of yours is proof against all criticisms. Indeed, it can never be adequately praised. In a missive to Cassius, he referred to the assassination as your noble enterprise and wished that he himself had been its promoter. Appian writes that Cicero hated Decimus Brutus while he served Caesar, but loved him once he turned assassin. When Caesar's body was brought to the Forum later that day, Antony delivered a funeral oration to the crowd, upon which Shakespeare based his famous Friends Romans Countrymen speech. Antony dwelled on the exceptional qualities of the fallen leader, the brilliance of his campaigns, and the generosity and justness of his rule. Caesar had received many honors from a grateful people. He had mercifully pardoned opponents and even assigned them honors, pursuing a policy of reconciliation rather than retribution. For the gods he was appointed Pontifex Maximus, for the people of Rome he governed as consul, to his troops he was imperator, and to his enemies he was dictator. It was Caesar who enacted special laws against murder, yet this hero and father of Rome whom none of the enemy abroad had been able to kill, now lay dead, ambushed within his own city, struck down in the very seat of the Senate in an act of vilest perfidy. Caesar was Rome's benefactor, Antony went on. Even in his death he remembered the people. In his will he allotted seventy-five denarii to every Roman adult male and bequeathed them public use of his gardens beyond the Tiber. Antony then picked up Caesar's robe and displayed its blood-stained rents, pointing out each dagger-gash and the number of wounds. Overcome with anguish and fury, the assembled throng placed Caesar's body on a pyre and set fire to it. "'Public grief,' Suetonius writes." was intensified by the crowds of foreigners lamenting in their own fashion, especially Jews who came flocking to the farm for several nights in succession. Many in the crowd denounced the Senate for witnessing the assassination without attempting to stop it. Even as the pyre burned, angry bands charged off to attack the houses of the murderers, Cicero claims that Slaves and beggars were sent with firebrands to attack our homes. Other disturbances erupted across the city, some of which were ruthlessly suppressed by the optimates' armed cadres. Still, the situation was getting out of hand. In his private correspondence, Cicero called for a violently vengeful policy that sharply contrasted with his high sounding public pleas for harmony and reconciliation. He complained bitterly about the Senate's failure to undo Caesar's reformist laws and urged extreme measures against the Caesarian forces. A year after the assassination, we find him spurring Brutus on to sterner retribution, urging a final solution to the class conflict. I do not admit your doctrine of mercy. There should be a salutary severity for... If we are going to be merciful, civil wars will never cease." He praised one consul for massacring proletarian rioters and destroying a monument they had erected in the Forum in Caesar's honor. Only the most thorough bloodletting would put an end to popular resistance, and he was all for it. Sometime later, however, upon finding himself on the losing side of the Second Civil War, Cicero once again was a temperate and conciliatory man. With his usual hypocrisy and poltroonery, he commended an acquaintance who sided with the Caesarian party for being in favor of a moderate use of victory, for this was the only sensible and decent course. The assassins soon realized that the populace was not about to embrace them as heroes. Two days after the killing, With agitation and riot at an intense level, Decimus Brutus was writing to Marcus Brutus and Cassius, urging that they all clear out of Italy and emigrate to Rhodes or somewhere. If things got better, then they could return. If worse, then they could have recourse to armed conflict, a course they dared not pursue at present for lack of sufficient forces. Cicero, too, now thought it better to depart. Admitting that the city was in the hands of traitors and that neither Brutus nor Cassius could live there safely, the two assassins departed Rome several weeks after the Ides of March. In the Forum, Caesar's improvised funeral pyre burned through the night, fueled by the offerings of the crowd. The plebs tore up the platforms of the judges and flung them into the fire along with boards, benches, and any other flammable materials they could find. Women threw in their ornaments and amulets, soldiers, their decorations and laurels. As the night wore on, the moaning wind sounded its requiem, lifting the flames upward. Not many in the assembled crowd understood that so too was their 500-year republic going up in smoke. Some years after Caesar's demise, When Augustus reigned supreme, there arose in the northern sky a comet. The elder Pliny writes that it was like a bright star, visible from all lands, for seven days. Privately, Augustus happily interpreted the comet as having appeared in honor of himself. But Pliny has the emperor saying publicly, The common people believed that this star signified the soul of Caesar, received among the spirits of the immortal gods, and on this account the emblem of a star was added to the bust of Caesar. Today in modern Rome, amidst the ruins of the Forum, there stands the Temple of Julius Caesar, reputedly built upon the very site where his earthly remains had been burned. Indeed it seems centrally situated in the Forum, just where Caesar's body would most likely have been placed. The temple is a modest, one-story structure composed of the dark, narrow bricks that were the common building material of the Republic's public edifices. Rome did not become a city of marble until Augustus. It is said that the ashes of Caesar's pyre still rest somewhere beneath the structure. To this day, every year on the 15th of March, numerous bouquets of
1: flowers are left at the temple entrance by persons unknown. Chapter 10 The Liberties of Power Our reasons are so full of good regard. Julius Caesar, Act 3, Scene 1
0: Some historians seem to think that Caesar's assassination was the outcome of a clash of egos. Being so overshadowed by this remarkable individual, the uneasy aristocrats decided to cut him down. As Dio asserts, they acted out of jealousy of Caesar's onward progress and hatred of his being esteemed above others. For Suetonius, what made them despise him so bitterly was his failure to rise to greet the Senate when it approached him with an imposing list of honors. While exchanges between Caesar and his opponents were often caustic, such incidents hardly explain why the Optimates opted for murder. Suetonius himself acknowledges that Caesar went out of his way to cultivate amicable relations with members of the Senate, including some bitter enemies. In a private letter, Cicero mentions the notable and even greater than human generosity shown to my brother and myself by Caesar. As late as August or September 46 BC, he wrote that Caesar was daily becoming more conciliatory toward his opponents. Yet, of course, Cicero enthusiastically sided with the assassins, finding his class interests far more compelling than Caesar's personal magnanimity. Caesar had sympathizers in the Senate, including some of the eclipsed patrician families. He had active supporters among the equestrians, some of whom served as officers in his army. But the optimates that highly conservative inner circle of wealthy and powerful aristocrats shut him out coldly. All their instincts rose against him, for they understood, as Geldzer puts it, that, unlike themselves, he did not inevitably regard the conservation of their inherited supremacy in the state as the be-all and end-all of his life. Some writers argue that Caesar was assassinated because he usurped power and reduced the republic to a shadow. The Sapiens states that Caesar's opponents acted out of longing for the traditional constitution. Ernst Mason, echoing Cicero, assures us that Caesar, an ambitious, dangerous man who would do anything for power, was killed by Romans loyal to the republic. Michael Grant maintains that the assassins carried out their deed because they categorically refused to accept one-man rule. In fact, the senators willingly accepted one-man rule when it ruled in their favor, often casting about for a strong man who would roll back the popular cause. As Cicero admits in a private letter, what we want is a leader and a man of moral weight and a sort of controller. The Optimates had opposed Caesar well before he assumed dictatorial power, even before he first ran for consul in 60 B.C. They sought to thwart him during his proconsulship by attempting to confer on him a province from which he would have gleaned no advantage whatever. They resisted his efforts to forge a way to high office because they detested everything he stood for. Caesar was not just another popularis who rallied the commonality, which would have been bad enough, but a brilliant, charismatic one like Gaius Gracchus, who pursued a broad program of redistributive reform. Worse still, like Marius, he had an army at his back, and far beyond Marius, he had devilishly keen political instincts and a deep grasp of social policy. Furthermore, he was personally incorruptible. True, like other public figures, he indulged shamelessly in the corrupt practice of buying influence and votes, but he himself could not be bought off or otherwise lured into an alliance with the optimates, as could reformers manquets such as Pompey. Caesar treated erstwhile foes with unusual leniency. In 44, shortly before the Ides of March, he selected Aulus Hirtius and C. Vibius Panza as consuls for 43, and Munatius Plancus and Decimus Brutus for 42. The latter was also assigned to rule Cisalpine Gaul. All four repaid him with their daggers. Caesar appointed Gaius Trebonius and Tilius Cimber to be governors of Asia and Bithynia, respectively. They, too, participated in the assassination, and he appointed the leading protagonists of the plot, Marcus Brutus and Gaius Cassius, as Praetor Urbanus and Praetor Peregrinus, respectively. One opponent whom Caesar never had much opportunity to woo was Cato, who breathed only enmity toward him from the start. After the defeat of Pompeian forces in 46, Cato, seeing that the optimate cause was lost, and unwilling to submit to Caesar, who was expressly ready to pardon him, committed suicide. Still, Caesar refused to pursue a policy of retribution against his family, keeping Cato's patrimony intact for his children. Caesar's renowned clemency stemmed from neither lack of resolve nor reckless prepossession. Rather, it was a conscious tactic born of his strategy of reconciliation. His goal was to turn political enemies into allies. His modus operandi was cooptation rather than proscription. Harsh punitive measures, he believed, only created a toxic residue of enmity and vengeance. Rather than have the wealthy oligarchs skulking about in the shadows, harboring revenge in their hearts, he would give them responsibilities and places of honor in his administration. He thought to box them in. Once they saw that he was the only one who could bring peace and stability, they would go along rather than resist, giving a little to the people in order to keep a lot for themselves. But history offers few, if any, examples of powerful classes becoming willing accomplices in the diminution of their own material privileges. What seems to have escaped Caesar's understanding, we can say with the benefit of hindsight, is that his generosity was insufficient recompense for oligarchs in high dudgeon. As long as his populist policies fed the unforgiving hatred so darkly nursed by the optimates, his leniency toward them could only work against him. It is a mistreatment of history to reduce this struggle to a factional or personal feud or even a purely constitutional issue devoid of social
1: content. The oligarchs were less Caesar's personal rivals and